Hello and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of Britain's brightest pop mag smash hits and has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Simon Galloway and no, it's not Jockey Wilson. It is in fact my Giddy Pop soul brother, Gavin Hogg. Hey, Upside, you're right. I'm very well. That's a lovely shirt that you're wearing. Thank you very much. This evening, it, it is. I must say that as we're recording this, it's a sweltering evening, and we've got the windows open, so Gavin's wearing an appropriate shirt. But if you hear any clanging, banging, cars going past, dogs bark, anything like that, if I just heard a dog barking, <laughs> so it's all just it's all just happening, and that's absolutely fine because if we close the window, we might. Go limp like a lettuce that's been left out for too long. <laughs> that's excuses out of the way. So uh, before we set the carousel spinning in motion, Gav, who's been forming an orderly queue at the carousel refreshment kiosk to buy us a frothy coffee? We've got Rob Pryor, who says the podcast goes from strength to strength. Enjoy a top pop cuppa on me. Thank you, Rob. We shall. Lovely Joe DB, who says, keep on flinging this filth at us pop kids, boys. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you, Joe. God bless you. And Pete Brasted says, keep up the good work. Much obliged, Pete. Thank you very much. What, what is the filth? I feel we shouldn't dig into that. No. I don't know. Let's just leave that there. <laughs> Best move not. On. It's, it's interesting how people interpret things in different ways. Uh, I've got a couple more pop kids, actually, to, uh, to add to that list. MJ Brown says, thanks for the continued great work. Really appreciate it. And Gordy Boy says, amazed to hear the Higsons featured in the Toya issue. I was at UEA then and hoping my student indie band could hitch the coattails of Switch and the likes of Screen 3 and the Farmer Boys. I've got a fair idea who did steal those bongos. It wasn't me. Keep up the fine work. Anyway, uh, thank you all. And uh, if you want to support us, you too can do the same. It's very simple. And it can be just a one-off thing. Or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It's up to you. Just go to ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod. That's ko-fi.com slash giddypoppod. And chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. So, Gav, what's occurring in the land of the carousel? Well, you may ask, Si. We've spun forward another six months from our last episode and we've pitched up on a car park next to BBC Television Centre at the tail end of 1982. Unfortunately, there's a problem with Mr Jenkins' music box, which plays as the carousel spins. I myself am only capable of a few rudimentary chords on the guitar, none of which would make a suitable accompaniment to the fairground experience. And you, Si, although you're a more accomplished musician, you're otherwise occupied busily sweeping up the sweetie wrappers recently left by Toya and Adamant. Yeah, take it home with your little hands. I know, they're terrible, aren't they? And so Mr Jenkins hatches a plan B. Through a gap in the door at TV Centre, he hears a bunch of musicians playing some raucous and delightful Celtic soul. After the band have finished their performance, he sidles up to the violin player. He offers her a fiver, a baby sham, a bag of dry-roasted peanuts or pork scratchings. She can't have both, he was very clear about that. And a free ride on the carousel if she'll play her bewitching melodies for half an hour. At first she says, gee, no. But then she changes her mind and accepts his offer. And when the 30 minutes is up, she walks over to us and demands her prize. Mr Jenkins shrugs and says, by way of explanation... This is what she's like. Who are we to turn her down for our music box replacement, don't we? It's Helen O'Hara from Dex's Midnight Runners, and we are indeed honoured to welcome her aboard our humble merry-go-round. Welcome, Helen. How are you? Hello. Very, very well, thanks. And I'm really pleased to be invited on the show. Thank you. 
Well, thank you for playing uh, as a carousel span for the last half hour. Now it's your turn to take a ride. Which horse would you like to sit on? Can you describe what kind of horse you would go for Ooh. on a carousel? Um, I would go for a bright pink horse with a long tail. Oh, delightful. And a smiling face. But I have to say, I wouldn't have accepted the pork scratchings because yes. I'm a vegetarian and I've always been a vegetarian. Well, since 1982. So, so just, just mentioning that now. No, that's fine. It would well, have been you, an easy, easy, you know, yeah, so easy dry, decision. You're on, the dry, <laughs> you're on the dry roasted peanuts there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Good, glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Fellow veggies here as well. Um, so you've chosen your horse, pink one with a, a long uh, mane. In time-honoured fashion, the carousel will start spinning upon the truthful answering of this question, Helen. Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? No, I haven't. No. You can't. But, I, but, I, but I did feel sick on a carousel once when uh-huh. Dexys were doing a recording in Europe somewhere, and we were asked to sit on a carousel in the studio yeah. on a horse, I believe, <laughs> Um, and I had to ask for it to stop to get off every so often because I really, you know, playing the violin and going round and round, it, it just, yeah, it wasn't good. So I had to be excused a couple of times. Otherwise, I might have been sick. Wow. So, Imagine if there'd yeah. been a gumboot present and you'd have been sick in a gumboot on a carousel. Well, I mean, words, worlds would have collided. I know. <laughs> it would have been amazing. <laughs> But that's a truthful answer, so I'll press the uh, start button on the carousel. We're off. We're off. I, mean, I, I, okay. I do like how you gave that some serious consideration before you answered it. That was, uh, <laughs> that was, that was quite, quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so the carousel has spun us back to the smash. It's of December the 9th to the 22nd, 1982, a mere 40p. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that. Thanks to the Like Punk Never Happened and Smash It's Remembered websites. You'll find the links of the scans of this issue in the episode show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of uh, Hits. And uh, as ever, you'll find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on Twitter and Facebook as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So, Helen... December 1982, take us back. I mean, it, it had been quite a year for you. Well, it, it, yeah, it had been an amazing year. I'd, I'd finished four years at college. I'd recorded two Rye alongside Dex's, you know, with, with, in my last year. And then Come and Aline became number one and everything changed um, very, you know, well, incredibly. So towards the end of that year, so when I, yes, that issue, we pretty much finished the European tour. We'd done a, um, a UK tour and then we'd gone to Europe with incredible promotion all the time. So it, it was nonstop and we still hadn't quite stopped at this point. We, we were, um, I think we were, we'd been interviewed in Belfast or coming home from Belfast um, where the floor had collapsed um, in part of the floor had collapsed in the, in the Ulster Hall. I think <laughs> the fans are getting overexcited, which kind of summed up the, you know, my whole experience of the tour, I think <laughs> I totally relate to that. And um, we were about to just finish off with a bit more, more promotion. Um, we recorded Slade's Merry Christmas, everybody, which is going out on the TV show. And, Probably all looking forward to a Christmas break, I think, <laughs> as much as it had been a great time. 
So in the lead up to to this, you said you'd been at college. Did am I right in thinking you don't really come from a sort of a pop music background? Were you kind of much of a pop kid when you were growing up, or I was definitely from a pop background. Oh, okay. Actually, yes. I mean, um, I mean, I I learnt violin classically. But I'm one of seven children and I'm number six and my older brothers and sisters would play pop music, particularly my older brother. So I was sort of brought up on his record collection, really, the Stones and Kinks and Pretty Things and all the chart stuff going on. And it was always my preference and I always wanted to play in a band. But it was like, well, I'm playing the violin. This isn't really, you know, it's not guitar. It's it's not, not piano. It's not the drums. And funny enough, I was thinking about this the other day, and it never occurred to me to, to change, to, to change an instrument to make that possible. Because the violin, I think, was just very much my my thing. I thought mm. that's this is what I want to do. I knew I wanted to play the violin, be a professional violinist, and so I went along the classical route. Um, you know, having lessons and learning the piano, playing in youth orchestras. But when I got to about 17, and I'd just left school and gone to a technical college, I saw an advert in the local Bristol Evening Post, and it said something like pop musicians wanted, you know, all instruments considered. And so I, I answered the ad. And it was from the guy, the drummer, who used to play in the Groundhogs, um, Ken Pastelnik, and he'd formed a, an instrumental band sort of prog rock type of band and they wanted musicians and so myself and my best friend at the time who played viola we went along to audition and they gave us the job and so I left home at Mm. 17 joined the band (laughs) (laughs) and then after that band I went on to join another band um, which was a soul band and we supported uh, but I was joined that band on keyboards because they didn't want a violinist so that I thought well I'm you know I'm definitely in the pop world now. It's uh, somehow I'm going <laughs> to, whatever it takes, I'm going to stick here. Um, and I was I was quite good on the piano, so so it was okay, you know. But um, we were the backing band for Al Matthews. I don't know whether you remember him. He had a hit. Um, it would have been around 1976, 77, something like that. Um, with Fool, and it got to about this is a top twenty hit. He was an American soul singer. Um, good song actually. And we were his backing band. And when we came back, we then just, as you do, morphed into a new new wave band because punk was happening. <laughs> and suddenly it became a punk band. And I got my violin out there, you know, kind of fitted as well as the piano. So that was how I, I sort of got into pop music. But then we we were quite successful, but we didn't have any, we weren't signed to any record companies. We won a competition with the BBC, actually, a sort of battle of the bands, and we made a single for the BBC, but nobody signed us. And, and we sort of had got as far as we could. And it was at this point that somebody suggested, well, why don't you go to music college? You know, mm. I was a bit of, at a bit of a dead end. And I thought, well, you know what? That actually sounds, it's a positive thing. It sounds really, really good. I, I need to improve my fiddle playing. I auditioned. I got into Birmingham School of Music. And that's where I you know that's where I went for four years but but then I decided because my heart was had always been in pop I cut myself off from pop music completely and Mm. I didn't listen to anything at all because it was like the devil tempting me otherwise (laughs) 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 and I just worked hard as hard as I could all through college and and started to audition for orchestras and in fact I got a job 
with the Bilbao Symphony Orchestra in Spain in my fourth year. Mm. And I actually signed the contract. And so when I'd started working with Dexes, this was a real conflict because, you know, Dexes at this point, prior to Come and Eileen being successful, were absolutely broke. Mm. They were on, it was sort of last chance saloon, really, with the record company and it didn't look like a particularly stable or, or a good offer, but but it was an amazing band to me. I just thought this this band is just everything I've dreamed of. It, you know, the violin works in it. it. It's got this amazing group of musicians, an incredible leader. Um, I, I never really had any doubt actually that it wouldn't work, and 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 so I I actually turned the contract down in the end with the orchestra because I just. I, I couldn't think it, it, how it wouldn't work, if you know what I mean. I mean, mm. it was, you know, um, and then, of course, Eileen became number one. So, You kind of did. <laughs> but, but I've always been proud of myself in a way, I think, to, that, that I, I joined the band and I believed in the band, even though it might not have worked out. And, but it did work out, if you know mm. what I mean. Um, you know, I, was, I wasn't joining a band that was successful. I mean, they, obviously they had been successful, hmm. but I didn't really know much about their past because, like I say, I hadn't been following pop music for four or five years. So my brother had got a couple of this. My younger brother had got a couple of their singles, you know, Show Me and Gino. Um, and I sort of vaguely remembered them. But, but you know, to me, they, 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 they just they blew me away, you know, and it's... I couldn't fight it, I think. Hmm. I just couldn't fight it. So, um, yeah, amazing, really. <laughs> I, I think it's a, what you did is very much in keeping with the ethos of the band as well, isn't it, about just having belief and committing to something and, you know, just going with, with your gut instinct. You did it yeah, the Dex's totally. way. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I, I did. And I think, I think that's one of the reasons why the band really worked for me because at, at college I was – you know, I was in at eight thirty every morning. I left at nine at night. I was totally dedicated to what I was doing. You know, I wanted to be the best I could. I was totally committed to the music. Um, and so when I met Dexes, it, it was the equivalent of that. And even though the other bands I'd been in in Bristol, you know, I really loved being with them. They're great. We worked hard. Dexes were just another level. Mm. You know, it was. It really was the classical equivalent of. Pop music, you know, pop, their, their, their style was their classical equivalent, if you know what I mean. It was total dedication, loads of rehearsing. They, they, they just worked in exactly the same way, except it was um, pop music. Mm. When did you um, first encounter Smash It? So had you been a reader before you joined Dexes at all? Or I guess you probably didn't if you were kind of issuing the world of pop at that That's time. That's right. No, I didn't know Smash It really until, until I joined Dexes. And, and then pretty much... So I joined Dexes um, after I'd left college and a few weeks before Eileen started to get into the charts. So that was the sort of timescale. And it was only once we started touring and people were buying magazines and The Enemy and The Melody Maker and would have been smash hits as well, anything like that. I would have got to have known it then. Um, but no, I didn't know about it before. But it, but it stuck out, you know, because of smash hits, because it was um, – Colourful and bright and positive and fun. And um, I mean, I can't remember what Dex's take was on it, to be honest, but I think we probably would have liked it, you know, because it was always like 
good pictures, you know. <laughs> we thought that was really important for a start. But, but um, Kevin had changed, from what I can gather, in his um, – obviously, I didn't know him before, but, but um, he was embracing – the success at the time, you know, mm. and so he, you know, maybe in the years before he might not have done a smash hit interview or something. I don't know, but you know, he was up for it, and and um, yeah, I mean, I I thought it thought it was great. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of tongue in cheek a bit, wasn't it? You know, and everything, but <laughs> that was part so. of yeah. its <laughs> part of its charm, <laughs> and it was a you know a relief not to have everything too serious all the time. You know? <laughs> And were you listening to much of the pop music that would have been covered in Smash It's by then, you know, by the time you were indexes and part of the pop world? Were you uh, listening to your uh, contemporaries or? Well, I was thinking about that recently and I, we didn't really have a lot, didn't have much of a chance, to be honest, because at the time I was pretty broke, you know, even starting out with Dexes, you know, I was put on a on a wage, but it wasn't like I'd, you know, was earning much money, you know, because Dexas didn't, at that point, still still didn't have much money, you know, it hadn't come in and and, um, I hadn't written any of the songs anyway. And and so I was still living like a student. I was still living in my student flat and I'd had enough money to buy a radio. So I bought a radio, so I'd have probably had the radio on. I just about had enough money, I think, a few weeks later to buy um, a small portable black and white TV with an indoor aerial, you know. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but, but we wouldn't have had much time to listen to music, to be honest, because when you're on tour, you know, it's not like now where you can hear everything through technology. Mm. You wouldn't have been able to hear anything on the tour bus. And so it was really only through sort of going to radio stations or, or playing on top of the pops or something like that, that I would have heard things. So when I was looking through the magazine, I was thinking, I don't know a lot of these, a lot of these songs, you know, it's quite interesting really. Um, and Siobhan from Banana Rama caught my eye, her, her top 10, yeah. because he, Siobhan was a friend of, of um, Kevin's and her, Siobhan's sister was Marie who played Eileen in the video. Oh, right. In Come and Eileen video. Yeah. Ah, and see. Pete Barrett, who did the um, all the artwork for Dex's, the graphic designer, he, he was a friend of theirs too. So they were a sort of friendship group, you know. So I was looking at Siobhan's um, top 10 and I just thought, gosh, she, you know, it was really good. I, I loved all her, her choices in music. And that's the sort of difference. So somebody like her was currently up to date and knew all the past music and everything and I was like this new girl to yeah. pop music, but I had got a background in it. But, but, but a big gap a, as well. A big gap, yeah. a big gap, and really very much based on my brother's records, which were very much, you know, I was really very much into the Rolling Stones and, and current pop music. And then the music that the bands when I was 17 to 21 listening to, which were, you know, things like Marvision of Orchestra and, mm. you know, <laughs> Captain Beefheart and the Frank Zappa, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know, <laughs> not chart stuff, you know, no. and we would never have watched Top of the Box then, you know, oh, no, you know, it been the old grey whistle test, you know. <laughs> so I did have a massive gap. And and funny enough, this still makes me laugh, but when I think it might have been the first rehearsal I went to with Dexys, after we'd rehearsed some songs, um, this is before I'd found the other two fiddle players for Kevin, 
he came over to me and he said, well, what music do you like listening to? And I knew he didn't mean like Beethoven or Mozart, you know. So, and I just, it was, I just couldn't think of anything because I didn't know anything. And all I could think of was that my flatmate had been playing David Bowie recently. And I was, I did used to be a fan of David Bowie. So I said, David Bowie, you know, and Kevin, Kevin didn't say anything. He just deadpan silence. And I just, I didn't know whether, you know, whether it was good to have said it or not or, and I still don't know, actually. I must ask him first. <laughs> but, the, but that's what it was. I was actually really worried about saying anything because I desperately wanted to be in the band. You know, I suddenly found this dream band. And I just sensed that, you know, saying the wrong thing, I might, might not get the job. But, of course, yeah. it didn't matter at all. You Wearing know. your Marvin Vichy New Orchestra <laughs> T-shirt might get you kicked out. <laughs> Always a worry. Oh, it might have done if I just yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know what the right answers would have been now, but, you know, that's a bit late. <laughs> right, well, shall we get stuck into the uh, magazine? Yeah, then, let's shall do we? it. Let's do it. Okay, so on the front cover, big close-up of uh, Kevin Rowland there with his lovely curly locks. And it promises a free Christmas record, 12 minutes of festive fun. So that's the uh, the flexi disc that he got on the front of there. And uh, it also promises, uh, well, Dexies, we know about that. ABBA, The Human League, White Snake, Soft Cell, Yazoo and Shalimar. And let's just have a little look at the uh, songs that are in there. And I want you to play, pay close attention to these because we'll be coming back to these later. Um, so the songs in this issue of Smash It's bearing in mind it's December. Uh, so we've got Dear Addie by Kid Crow and the Coconuts, Changes by Imagination, Where the Heart Is, Soft Cell. I need the music here, the chart music. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Buffalo Cows, Malcolm McLaren, the world's famous supreme team. Let's Go to Bed by The Cure, The More I See, The Less I Believe by Funboy 3, Love by John Lennon. Yeah. Um, Lordy Miss Claudie, Shaking Stevens, Save Your Love, Rennie and Renato. Thank you, The Pale Fountains. Louise by Phil Everly, Little Town by Cliff Richard, and I'm All Right by Young Steve and the Afternoon Boys. So I think <laughs> I think we can agree that it's not the uh, the most exciting collection of songs that we've ever encountered in Smash Hits. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. You're working with what you got. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what's in this issue of Smash It's. Turning over a page, we go to start. We've got a personal file, first of all, with George Michael. Now, at this point, George would have not long been in the charts um, with Young Guns Go For It. So in the charts for the first time. In fact, it says George Michael brackets of Wham, in case we don't know who he is, which we may not have done at that time. And uh, they ask the usual kind of questions just to get a bit of background information about him. And there's some really nice stuff in this. Like I say, it's a time when he wasn't well known. And well, it's, it's, He's only 19 as well. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? 19 years old. <laughs> and it's yeah. funny looking back now, 40 years later, where, you know, he's, he's still a household name. Um, but back then it was, uh, yeah, this was kind of almost his introduction to the pop kids. His first memory was seeing some goats at a zoo. I found that quite charming, really. <laughs> that was really Aww. sweet. <laughs> saw some goats at a zoo. And it talks about his first concert, which I think is lovely because it was um, seen out in John at Earl's Court in 1975, he says. 
He was spot on, brilliant, especially considering how big Earl's Court is. It was a fantastic show. And it's amazing to think that less than three years later, you know, he was on stage at Live Aid singing with Elton John. Mm. And I just think mm. if he'd have known then, yeah. you know, what was going to happen to him in three years' time, he would never have believed it. it was, so it's just really lovely to get that little snapshot. Um, he talks about his most famous friend as well, which is really sweet. And he says, Andrew Ridgely, my partner in Wham. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and uh, quite another little interesting thing I, uh, I spotted was uh, in Ambitions, it says, um, to be one of the best-known artists of my time, which I think we would all say he'd achieved. Also, that'll probably include acting, I hope. I don't think, apart from videos, did he ever do anything? Acting wise, I don't recall them doing any acting. No, no. So that didn't work. No. A lot of pop stars at the time wanted to do acting, didn't they? Yeah, they all wanted to be all rounders. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> anything that um, that you spotted in their side that I've not mentioned? Uh, well, he's talking about the last film that he saw, which was ET at a CBS conference. He says, "I couldn't really assess it because they put it on at one o'clock in the morning, and I kept falling asleep. I didn't think that much of what I saw. It seemed like a real kids' film to me. Andrew liked it though." <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and they, they ask him about his favourite sandwich as well. Ham with mayonnaise. I love absolutely anything with mayonnaise. And then you get this real sense of what his life was like at the time as well when they ask him the colour of his bedroom wall. Oh, uh, yeah, that's yeah. really good. Uh, it's a brown with a big green space where I painted around a book rack. I moved the book rack, but I still haven't got around to filling in the space where it was to match the rest of the balls. <laughs> so you got, just get this idea of like, you know, just like, you know, a little flat or a bed sit somewhere and you know, yeah. George yeah. Michael with a, a brown wall with a green bit on it. <laughs> you probably had an old student flat like you that's, did at the time, yeah. Helen. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But that's lovely, isn't it? That, that sort of detail, because you can, like you say, you really can imagine it uh, mm. and, he wouldn't have had time to paint it. I shouldn't imagine either with the way his career was taken off. You know, <laughs> too busy going for it as a young gun, wasn't he? No time for painting for the young guns, yeah. or the bad boys. Mm. <laughs> no. He should have got a paint gun. There we yeah. go. Sort him out. Paint guns, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> that could have been the next video, couldn't it? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've also got uh, in start. Uh, now this was great. There's um some stuff on uh, relatives of pop stars. We've got the Brothers Kerr, so we've got Jim Kerr from Superminds and little Mark, who looks very uh, similar to him, a little 10-year-old. It says, uh, when asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, 10-year-old Mark gave the simple mind next to him a shrewd glance and replied, nothing like him. Seems like a sensible sort of chap. <laughs> sensible sort of chap. <laughs> and we've also got um, Simon Le Bon off of Duran Duran, of course, with his younger brother, Jonathan. And... Uh, it says, uh, Jonathan's currently in foreign parts. Big Brother Simon enthused so much about the delights of Antigua after filming the Rio video that Jonathan dashed off there to scuba dive. Well, I tried to do a bit of digging on this. Go on. I found, <laughs> I looked up Jonathan Lebon, and he's now a fairly well-known osteopath somewhere in the UK. And I, I found his email address. I thought, I'll write and ask him about his memories of Antigua. I didn't get a reply. Oh. <laughs> so- so, uh, yeah, I can't fill you in any more. But I did try, so I want you to know I did try. I did my best. <laughs> well, you so- know where to go if you've got a bad back. In yeah, there, exactly. You know, you know, you know what I mean? You might respond. Yeah. Maybe that's what I should have done. I should have said I had a bad back, gone for an appointment, and then I could have yeah. kind of doorstepped yeah. it that way. Yeah, oh, yeah. Too late. Yeah. Mind you, you could be in a dangerous position then, couldn't you? You know, depending how we, what mood, you know. 
how he took it. That's true. Yeah, I'd be at his mercy, wouldn't I? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're at his mercy. Yes. <laughs> Maybe don't. Perhaps it's just as well if we didn't, uh, didn't yeah. get any further yeah. there. We've also got, as, as Si mentioned uh, on the front, it's very specific, a 12 minutes of festive fun, the free Christmas record, which I bought at the time. I had this copy. And I loved this uh, flexi. It's basically kind of the idea is a little party. Um, it's been sponsored by uh, Levi's Jeans, Black Levi's. And Mark Ellen is the host. And he's kind of recreated a party scene with all these pop stars coming in and out and people in the corner, someone in the kitchen, someone having a bit of pudding, that kind of thing. And um, we thought we'd ask Mark to uh, give us a bit more information about how the whole thing was put together. Hello. Glad you could make it. Happy Christmas. Welcome to the Smash Hits party. Dump your coat, grab a mince pie. You want pop stars? They're all here. Oh, we're in the left-hand corner. Duran Duran. One, two, one, two, three, for good king. When the sleds look out on the feast of Stephen. When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. Flexies were a big deal at the time. Do you remember there's a magazine called Flexi Pop? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, because they were such a novelty. And if we, we had put a couple of Flexies on the cover before, um, one with, I think, XTC, I can't remember now, in Krypton Green in kind of 1979, 1980 or something. And it had been a big seller. And so we just wanted another excuse to, to do another Flexi because we thought they were very commercial. And then we went to, I think, Levi's and said, are you up for it? And they absolutely jumped at it. Now, repeat... And what do you want for Christmas, young man? And what do you want for Christmas, young man? Apart from the Black Levi's, of course, which goes without saying. Were many of the pop stars difficult to persuade to take part or were they all really up for the extra exposure? Well, no. I mean, the ones who were around who were part of our gang were very, very good. I mean, most of the people we got were on the way up, really. They were Duran and they were, I mean, Adam was a huge star, actually. They were Mary Wilson, you know, they were Martin Fry, people who hadn't quite kind of got to the top of the mountain yet. And we couldn't get the human lead, we couldn't get the Eurythmics. They probably either didn't want to do it or they weren't around or whatever, it was too complicated. We certainly could never get people like Bowie or, uh, or Elton yeah. John because they were out of our realm. But no, I thought they were a pretty good uh, lineup, really. I had a, li- a little listen to it just a, a couple of minutes ago. It just reminded me of various things. I basically got a, a Ewer recorder, a reel-to-reel, and raced around town, tracking down everybody I could. And I think it was done in about a week, actually. So it was pretty phenomenal, if you think about it. And also think about the fact this was analog. Yeah. You know, now it'd be very straightforward. Wherever they were around the world, they'd just do your recording and they'd email it to you. You know, but then I had to physically go to them with a machine <laughs> and a microphone. <laughs> I was doing about, I don't know, five or six a day, really. And it was actually very good fun. Duran Duran, I remember saying, Silent Night, and then we had to go back to them and say, look, there's a copyright problem with that. Could you do something else? They did Good King of Winterless. Adamant was very funny, I thought. Incredible. Yeah, the thing about yeah, the bear that... trap and the tweet's <laughs> greatest hits. Whatever one of Christmas was $2 million in a Swiss bank account or something. I thought Sarah for Banana Rama was fantastic. All she wanted was Al Pacino. Mary Wilson, completely on brand, falling asleep on Auntie Sissy's uh, fake fur coat, her memories of Christmas, <laughs> while the party went on downstairs. Hello, this is Agneta of ABBA. And this is Bjorn. And this is Benny. And we wish you all... Good jul og godt nytt år. <laughs> Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. ABBA were a really big deal. 
I did them at the Dorchester. I took along my wife, who, um, pretending she was a member of the Smash Hits staff, because she was so besotted with Abram, desperately wanted to meet them. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask how, how they appeared, because that seemed... Oh, they were great, because they were already just doing press in the Dorchester, and I said, can I just turn up and just stick a microphone out? And they didn't do much more than say Happy Christmas. One of them wasn't there, actually. Uh, Annie Freed was, I think, making a solo album with Phil Collins. Um Chad Smathers were and Madness were very funny. They were great. Yeah. Boring Bob, Bob Grover. That 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 dates it for you because the Piranhas were there for a really big deal for a brief period in time. Yeah, uh, and then we're, we're gone. Snow girl, snowy owie. Nick Hayward's very good, good value. He sang Snow Girl, and he made up some kind of song. I was going to ask if it was Nick that sang that, because it's, it's kind of like a bit of a Billy Bragg kind of sound to that song, isn't it? But, yeah. I thought he was okay. great. I thought Paul Willow was hilarious. Paul Willow was very unpopular with lots of other pop stars. They said something like, uh, hello, it's Paul Weller here speaking, uh, but don't let that stop you enjoying yourselves. <laughs> because he was, kind of, he was kind of persona non gratis. He goes, hello, Simon, hello, Nick, all these people you uh, made massive enemies of. Martin Freigenfeld, I'm one of the best people I was, Toya. Toya's a real trooper, you know, she'd been to drama school, she was an actress. She put on this completely kind of pissed act about inventing some kind of new drink. Hello, yes, it's Toya here. <laughs> what I've done, to make up for all the punch that I've drunk, I've put bar foam into it, lard, nutmeg, and bicarbonate of soda. And now I'm thinking of calling it shampoo. <laughs> and I hope everyone's having as happy a Christmas as I'm having. <laughs> and, and the other big stars were, were Musical Youth, I think, who did a kind of scar version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, who were really, really funny. It just reminded me how analogue it was. We sat up all night, Dave Hepworth, myself, and a guy called Trevor Dan, an old mate was a producer of, produced old Grey Whistle Dust, actually, in various Radio 1 DJs. And uh, we just did it. We cut the tapes together and we recorded all the sound effects with the, the party and the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the clinking drinks and, the, and the, the noise and the dancing and the band and things. It was all done overnight. It took us till four o'clock in the morning. But we were quite pleased with it. And there was a little thing where you, you were told if it didn't play, you had to put a 2P bit on the arm. That's right. <laughs> the only people who didn't do it directly were the police. There were two members of the police. Sting didn't do it, but the other two somehow couriered over a little tape they'd done in, in Compass Point or somewhere. That's right, yeah. Stuart Copeland said they'd got Sting basting in the oven. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, but it, it was really... And it was a huge seller. It's funny. I mean, there was a big deal at the time, and then I kind of forgot about it. Then somebody told me it was on the internet, and it's become a, one of those things that people refer to. You know, anyone who read Smash Hits is, do you remember the Flexi? And uh, I always felt a bit embarrassed because I sound so absurd on the whole thing, doing the kind of party <laughs> MC. Oh, look, who's at the corner? Is it, you know, Nick Hayward? I think it is. Hello, boys. Have another mince pie. Or, I don't know, it's absolutely appalling, really. But we were very tired. It was recorded at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm just making it up. I'm, I'm hallucinating with exhaustion, really. But it was quite good fun. Now settle down, because Captain Sensible's about to do his party piece. Christmas time is here once more. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes a bore. But don't worry what the vicars say, because they're old rotters anyway. So drink some booze and what the heck, stuff that turkey down your neck. I love you all. Ooh. 
no, no, all right, all right, don't throw things. He's doing his best. Anyone else? As a kid listening to it, it really kind of created that world that, you know, like in my head, I imagined that's what pop stars were doing, and <laughs> it was brilliant. You know, it really... Well, it was, it was, it was nice because what we'd done with the magazine is create that idea anyway, that it was just one big part of the party on paper. When you opened it up, all these kind of little cartoon characters were kind of, were kind of uh, all there together. And that somehow they were friends, you know. That somehow they like like the Beatles in 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 Hard Day's Night, or it is was it Help, you know, where they all live in the same flat. It was the idea we created this world where you you expect to open the door and there'll be Adamant over there, and there'll be and we did quite a lot of cartoons like that. Kipper Williams did quite a few cartoons, you know, and there'd be Boy George, and there'd be the Human League, you know, and it was just kind of as if they all kind of just existed under the Smash Hits roof, uh, and so it worked really. It continued that absurd um, idea, but quite successfully. Now what we need is a Christmas song. <laughs> Come again. No, a Christmas song. I said, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer had a very shiny nose and if you ever saw it you would even say it glows. Then run a foggy Christmas Eve like a Santa case and a time. Rudolph with your nose so bright won't you guide us Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you to Mark Allen for sharing his memories of Christmas past. And now we get to the first proper feature of the magazine, Worlds Apart, a feature on Yazoo. Alf and Vince probably wouldn't be friends if we weren't working together. They often don't meet up until just before going on stage. Dave Rimmer finds out what makes the odd couple tick. And I think um, Dave speaks to them separately, and and the piece is called Worlds Apart. He calls them the odd couple, and I think the whole feature really emphasises that aspect of the band and that they're a musical combo and nothing more than that outside of it. And Alison Moyet kind of uh, really dominates the piece, but I'll I'll just read the uh, the opening here. So uh, Dave's obviously asked asked them some questions and uh, they're, they're bouncing answers off each other. So Alf, uh, so remember Alison Moyer was called Alf at this point. Uh, entertainment, Vince. Post-futurism, Alf. Dress sense, Vince. Good looks. Sat next to each other on a couch in a pokey top of the pops dressing room. The two who make Yazoo are inventing explanations for their popularity and falling about laughing in the process. Your reporter suggests that apart from the fact that they make undeniably excellent pop records, much has to do with the contrast between them. Alf, who simply sees the coupling of her bluesy vocals with Vince's sequenced electronics as very logical, replies, I think it's strange that people think we're a strange combination. As far as we see it, a synthesizer is just another instrument. I'm just another singer. We're a vocalist and an instrumentalist like any other group. But things are never that simple, are they? The contrast in their musical inclinations aside, on stage, in photographs, on record, and through interviews, Alf and Vince project two very different personalities. And you can't help chuckling at Vince's cheek in replying to the advert for rootsy blues musicians from which Yazoo first sprang. Just as you can't help enjoying the joyous roughness of Alf's voice next to the digital precision of Vince's computers. Well, well I thought that was... Um quite well written actually because it, you know I thought they looked great they was they did contrast with each other and 
Alf was, you know, she, she was just being herself, and that's what I liked about her. You know, she, you know, she wasn't the stereotypical sort of slim, obviously pretty young woman. You know, she, but she had this huge presence and and, and a great look, and she, you know, they, well, they both look great together. And she's got a great voice, and and something I I didn't know when I found out um, that her dad was French, uh, you know, hence Moyet, and, and her other name was Genevieve or something like that, a, oh. a beautiful French name, Genevieve, I think. Um, and I just thought, gosh, if I had a name like that, that's what I'd use, not Alf, you know. <laughs> but um, um, so yeah, she had a French dad and an English mum, and um, just thought that was really interesting, and. I didn't know much about her at the time, but I just liked her because she was different, and I thought they were they were doing something a bit different because of her bluesy kind of rootsy voice contrasting with the synth and the fact that she was very present, obviously because she was the singer. But but you know what was his name again? Vince wasn't it? Vince yeah. the, the um, synth player. The other he, fella. He was <laughs> the other fella. Yeah. <laughs> he he was. Bit like the Pet Shop Boys guy, you know, the one who plays the synth who doesn't doesn't really say anything, and kind of, but they've got a very strong presence, you know. I thought they were good. I liked it. I thought it was quite it was quite brave, really, and quite honest for them to admit that they're they're not friends at all. You know, it's quite unusual, isn't it? Because normally bands will, even if there isn't really a lot of camaraderie between them, they'll just kind of say that. She says at one point, "I don't really know him. We get on fine, but that doesn't warrant an out of work relationship." And it's kind of a theme that comes up in some of the mm. other interviews in the uh, in the issue. I also like learning a lot about Alison's pre-Yazoo life <laughs> yeah. uh, in bands. I'd love to have seen the bands she was in. She was in a band called The Vandals. And then my favourite one is The Screaming Abdabs. <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they sound great. Obviously, we know that Vince used to be in Depeche Mode and he talks about recently going to see mm. them at Hammersmith Odeon and, and enjoyed it because I, I guess after he'd initially left... He probably wouldn't have wanted to see them for a little while. But I suppose by that point, both bands were, you know, Yuzu and Depeche Mode were doing well and both riding the giddy carousel of pop. So uh, I, I guess there was no uh, no one-upmanship or anything like that going on. And my absolute favourite bit in it all, it's just a tiny moment, but it really made me laugh. Um, Dave Rimmer, who's done the interview, is talking to Vince. And uh, it says, I asked Vince how he relaxes, and he tells me he watches television. It's pretty mundane, I know, he mutters apologetically, flicking his massive quiff out of his eyes. I can't see otherwise. And I've just got this great image of Vince watching telly <laughs> with this big flop of air like Phil Oakes, you know, and he's allowed to keep... <laughs> Flicking it yeah. out. Yeah, so I can watch Tomorrow's World. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his his favourite programmes are Mind It and The Professionals. All oh, right, okay. Ooh. Yeah. Not all about synths okay. or anything, yeah. <laughs> it was interesting as well, although they've got very separate lives and they're interviewed separately, they seem to have the same leather jacket. Are they sharing it? Is it they're just one between them and they get photographed in it? <laughs> What's yeah. going on there? Your turn now, Vince. Put it yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, well, leather jackets are expensive. So maybe they yeah. kind of went halves mm. and alternated days, or maybe even weeks, you know. Yeah. Or mornings yeah. and afternoons. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, got, you've got to have a, uh, you know, a very comprehensive jacket rotor, I think. Yeah. For, for that. <laughs> I always think Vince, Vince was quite. Uh, you know, on the ball with sort of logistics and maths. He came across as that kind of person. So I think he'd have got a good little spreadsheet, even before the days of Excel. <laughs> yeah. I think he'd have used a ruler and 
I, I, color coded it and everything. Yeah, it'd have, it'd have totally been into that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, now we've fully explored Yuzu's leather jacket rotor. Well, I, I quite like what um, Alison Meyer says here. It says that Alf doesn't have a boyfriend at the moment. She only likes earthy people, and you don't meet many of them nowadays. When I wonder if she'd describe Vince as an earthy person, she replies, much to my astonishment, I don't really know him, which is what we've already discussed. Uh, we don't really see each other until five minutes before the gig, and then on stage she says, I've been hanging around with the support band Boyzone. They're really earthy people. <laughs> that's not Boyzone, the... <laughs> no, no, no. Not, not, the not, the, uh, not, the, not the, not the 1990s boy band, no. but Boyzone, as in two... <laughs> Two words, separate words there. So I, have to, so I think what, we can... What's, what's earthy? Yeah, right? Do you think it involves unusual... a leather jacket? Mucky fingernails? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, working yeah, the that's, that's true. You know, You'd normally think of farmers, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. A farmer. <laughs> Potty mouth and likes a drink. I don't know. <laughs> I can't. I don't know. I don't know. Alison Moyes' version of earthy. Is. We need to get her on the podcast and find yeah. out the facts about the leather yeah. jacket and Expl- what exactly absolutely. an earthy person is. Yeah, and why she doesn't use Genevieve. <laughs> We've got lots of questions for her. Yeah. Already. <laughs> more oh, questions yeah. than answers there. <laughs> Uh, a couple of pages on, we've also got fifty autographed jam albums to be won. This was one of the first albums uh, I ever bought. Around this time, I bought "Dig the New Breed" by the Jam, and on the same day, I bought um, the John Lennon collection. They were the first two albums I ever bought. Still got a very, very soft spot for "Dig the New Breed." It's great. I got into them just as they were splitting up, which was uh, unfortunate. But there we go. <laughs> and after that, we uh, we moved to Shalimar. Jeffrey gets most of the picture. All three of them are in the picture, but uh, Jeffrey's got the lion's share of the uh, page and then small insets of Howard and Jody. And really, as, as I mentioned before, um, it's already been established in the Yazoo feature. There's kind of the theme of band tensions crops up again. And this is a, a little bit of a kind of uh, a story about how the group got to where they are now. But there's also a bit of a struggle within the group. Jeffrey and Jody formed the band when they were dancers on Soul Train. And we learned that Howard and Jody both grew up singing and listening to gospel music. And Howard actually described himself as still a very spiritual type of cat, which yeah. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Whether he's earthy, an earthy cat, we don't know, but earthy kit. Hey, <laughs> I just thought of that. Oh, that's good. Sorry, <laughs> size gone. Oh dear. Sorry. It's the hint. <laughs> There's no excuse for that. I do apologise. Um, so we learned that Howard saw Jody dancing on Soul Train and he told his cousin he'd talk to her because she's fine. But when they finally met, she pretty much ignored him. <laughs> so not the best start to the band, but it all worked out. So we, we find out a bit about them. And then uh, by way of contrast, we find out um, about Jeffrey. And, and this is quite a, a strange kind of backstory. It says, unlike Howard and Jody, Jeffrey was somewhat elusive about his birth date. After pausing for thought, he placed it on February the 13th, 1982. The delivery room, he assured me, was London's Embassy Club. It was there, on Shalimar's first visit to Britain, he met Lillian, a Chinese friend who sat expressionless <laughs> in his dressing room. This, he explained, was the turning point of his, of his life, a rebirth. Immediately, the figure you'll find on the sleeve of Friends, Wild Afro, Leopard Skin Jacket and Heavy Metal Guitar Hero Pose, gave way to a new Geoffrey Daniel a swift tour of London's clothes shops, and, on Lillian's advice, a visit to hairdresser Raymond Bird followed. That's a great name for a hairdresser, <laughs> Raymond Bird. <laughs> <laughs> is that time... with an E on the Raymond? Or... No, that's is just the, the way I said it. 
It's probably Raymond, <laughs> but Raymond sounded a bit more <laughs> ooh-la-la. La, you know. more hairdresser-like. <laughs> hair, yeah, definitely more hairdresser-like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the time of that pivotal appearance on Top of the Pops, he'd moved so far away from the visual stereotype of the black American artist that I, for one, briefly assumed he was actually British, an error which he not only accepts but even welcomes. So it feels like Jeffrey's kind of really fallen in love with the music and the fashions of the UK and... Uh, there's no sense really of, of particular tensions within the band, but it does feel like they, they're coming from very kind of um, separate places. I don't know if either of you kind of picked up on anything there. Did he say that in America, if you're a black musician, you're either kind of into funk, you were considered, you, ha- you were sort of in the funk world or you were soul and there wasn't really anything else. And this was why he liked coming to Britain and and... He says the black artist um, in the States is forced into one of two positions. Either you're hmm. a funkster and you wear those tight spandex suits or you're a soul act and you wear those old-fashioned suits. But he he was on a unicycle at one point. Did he say that as well? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's a... <laughs> yeah, he does, he does mention yeah. something about a unicycle somewhere. <laughs> yeah. well. well, I think it's, it's kind of been an odd year for them because – the Friends album had spawned quite a few big hit singles, obviously Night to Remember mm. Uh, mm. and I Can Make You Feel Good. But Jodie Watley was out of action for the initial part of the promotion for the album because she mm. just had a baby. Yeah. And so that's why Jeffrey Daniel ended up in the UK promoting the album on his own and doing that amazing dance routine on top of the pops where he's doing the moonwalk and, and things like that. If any of you are listeners to chart music, you'll have heard them discussing that in, in a recent episode. If not, go and check out the episode of chart music where they're looking at a, a 1982 edition of top of the pops it's from, from quite recently. But I think that it's had a really big impact, I think as well on Jeffrey himself, because he says when I, and obviously they've come up through Soul Train, so that's what they knew, mm. which is kind of like the black music Top of the Pops in a way. Um, when I watched, this is what he says, when I watched Top of the Pops for the first time, it was lost for words, strong enough to describe the impact. He ran down what had impressed him. ABC, there was something I'd never seen before. White guys in gold lime suits doing all those choreographed steps with a funk backing. Bow, wow, wow, imagination, Mark Armand. They all had their own concepts, which is something you don't get in the States. Everyone just hears a guitar lick on someone else's album and thinks, that's great, we'll rip it off. English acts are genuine. Of all the group, he's by far the most anglicised. His favourite listening of the moment is Culture Club, and he describes Lexicon of Love as a classic. Yeah, he didn't have too hard a time winning the other two over to his new ideas. Yeah, this is where he says, they were used to me. I'd always arrive at rehearsals dressed odd. I'd turn up on skates or on my unicycle. <laughs> so when I came in so when I came in with this new haircut, they just shrugged. That's Jeffrey. <laughs> What an entrance! Yeah, coming well, in on the unicycle. I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. Imagine turning up to Texas first rehearsal on a unicycle. That would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that—that's what makes him kind of like out of out of the three of them. He really understands the UK music scene. He actually feels like mm-hmm. what, what he's talking about, what he's into. It's almost like he's the Smash It's reader. Mm. At this point, he's, he's just yeah, absolutely perfect for, for Smash It's. But I don't know if you noticed in mm. the opening paragraph, it mentions um, someone called Jermaine. Oh, yes. And it mm. says, back in singer Jermaine, whose dancing was such a feature of Shalimar's first UK show at London's The Venue earlier this year, 
uses Jody's bathroom to get ready for the show. They chat together, they shop together on stage. He's now tucked in with the band a couple of paces back from the spotlights restricted to a few on-the-spot twitches. Uh, but that's Jermaine Stewart, who would have uh, a hit a few years later with um, We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off. So there you go. Oh, he was getting <laughs> squeezed out a bit there, wasn't he? He was, I think. yeah, yeah. Jeffrey's, yeah. Jeffrey's hair is fantastic in this as well, isn't it? It kind of looks a bit like Prince, mm. but he also looks like he could have just stepped out of Duran Duran. Yeah. White shirt, skinny tie, but also the uh, the floppy hair and stuff. He does look amazing. It's looks- so simple, but really, really cool. Yeah, he looks great. It's a great look. We move on. Let's see. That's just the next page. And we've got Bits, the fulcrum, the beating heart of um, Smash It's. And in this one, it mentions Echo and the Bunnymen. It says, the happy loss is Echo and the Bunnymen's third LP, and it'll be released on January the 21st. Well, there's an album that never came to pass, uh, because it was retitled Porcupine Mm. before (laughs) before it was released. Malcolm McLaren's underneath that. Obviously, Buffalo Gals is riding high in the charts at the time that this issue comes out. The lyrics are in the magazine as well. And uh, they have a little chat with Malcolm. It's the soundtrack of... I won't do the accent. We'll leave that to the, uh, the actor who's in the Pistols thing on Disney+. Plus. Um, <laughs> it's the soundtrack of the whole adventure of my journey all over the world, looking for magic and the origins of rock and roll. This is how Malcolm McLaren, once manager of both the Sex Pistols and Bow Wow Wow, describes his forthcoming LP and his current single, Buffalo Gals. It's the latest advance in his ever-changing vision of what current music technology should be. Records have become out of date, he says. Cassettes were fun, as by editing them, people could become their own DJs. But his new technique is enticingly simple, called scratching. It's based on the hip New York Street activity of playing bits of records backwards or forwards, then recording them over a drum machine and yodeling over the top. In other words, using records as instruments. This gets rid of the idea that to make a record, you have to go out and buy a synthesizer or a guitar. It also means you're reconstructing music out of old debris. It's like getting all your brother's records out of the attic and picking out all the best bits. It's all about realising you can put those favourite bits together and make a record just out of old debris. Rather ecological, really. And it kind of, I felt that was a, just a little bit misleading. And it, it almost makes it sound like Malcolm's invented scratching yeah. on that one, which is probably what he wants you to think anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember any, uh, many scratching records or hip hop records with yodeling on. Uh, no, I mean, possibly. <laughs> I'm sure there's been novelty. Frank Ifield might have done one in 1984. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a reference for the teenagers. Yeah. Yeah, Frank Ifield or Carl Denver. Um, across the page, uh, well, Siobhan's My Top Ten that Helen's already mentioned. And we'll just run through the uh, the tracks that she's uh, picked out. Number one is possibly one of my favourite songs ever. Um, Isley Brothers, Tell Me It's Just a Rumour Baby, which I knew because around this time, and I've probably mentioned it on the pod before, but um, my two oldest brothers were, well, much older than me. And going to Wigan Casino and Northern Soul All Nighters every weekend, I mean, Wigan Casino had come to an end by 1982. But this was one of the records that they would play around the house and just absolutely loved it. I uh, didn't know it before. I oh, just fell in love with it straight away. It's yeah. beautiful. And can can yeah. you believe it? It was one that they kind of recorded and discarded 
uh, and it kind of turned up uh, in the early 70s on, on a compilation and then got picked up by the Northern Soul scene and, and, and mm. quite rightly put out as a single by itself. But um, Siobhan says, uh, foot stomping music at its best. It reminds me of the days when the boys showed off their backflips as the girls watched in awe. We couldn't exactly do that in skirts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two she's got um parliament p-funk that's the law around here you gotta wear your sunglasses to right an unwritten law at the water splash london colony my local disco uh number three another soul tune another motown tune actually the marvelettes when you're young and in love a favorite slow number at our local pub disco number four aretha franklin don't play that song when i first heard this on the radio it was then i decided i wanted to be a singer Number five, little change in direction on this one. Sex Pistols, pretty vacant. When my mate Pete came round with his copy of the Pistols Anarchy in the UK, it was ages before I could make out any sort of tune, but at least it was exciting. Pretty vacant, however, has to be my favourite. Now, she may have struggled making out a tune on Anarchy in the UK, but I, when Pretty Vacant came out and I was four years old, I had trouble making out the lyrics. I thought they were singing Pretty Bacon. You're so pretty, you're so pretty bacon. Pretty bacon. Pretty bacon. <laughs> Four years old, I wouldn't have known what vacant was. No, but, you no, know, that's fair. Oh, exactly. Bacon yeah. was in my realm of experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number six, Joan Byers. Uh, the night they drove old Dixie down. Me and my dad used to sing along to this on the car radio. Number seven, the Wolf Tones, James Connolly. Never fails to stir up my patriotic fervour. Beautiful tune, angry lyrics. Eight, Dolly Parton, Dover. A sad tale with a lovely voice to go with it. I love songs that tell a good story. Number nine, oh, Shalimar, Night to Remember, my fave single by them. And number 10, Smokey Robinson being with you. Says and Kez, Sarah and Karen, used to laugh at me when this came on. Apparently, I used to sway to it with that faraway look in my eye. <laughs> nice choices, aren't they? Yes, good. Some, really good, really good choices. Yeah, some good stuff there. Yeah. And then at the bottom of this page, it's a rather eventful bit, this one. Caption, teardrops explode. We were one of the first alternative groups who wanted to be big and well-produced, but after a while that became such a norm that I felt it backfired on us. There was nothing more we could do. Julian Cope's on the phone laying an official wreath on the teardrop explodes. Hardy members Dave Balth, Gary Dwyer and Cope decided that enough was enough after their recent low-key British tour. And if you've ever read Head On, you'll know that that tour was an absolute <laughs> yeah. disaster. Uh, we tried to take the show as far away from what we used to do, says Julian, but it didn't work. Events became so weird that at the Manchester concert, Julian was reduced to taking off his clothes and chucking equipment off the stage. I'm a loose. I'm a loose performer, basically, because because I'm not that together. I felt I'd lost control over that gig. The stage monitors had had gone off and we couldn't hear anything we were playing. I got to the point where there was nothing more I could do. Denuding yourself in front of 1,000 people is basically saying, this is as far as I can go. It's not wrong. Yeah, it's one way of saying it, isn't it? Future... Future plans include a retrospective teardrop album, two solo singles and a solo LP. Julian will probably work again with Gary, who's also starting the Dumbfounding 2 with, you've guessed it, Dave Balf. Helen, has, mm-hmm. have any gigs ever gone so badly that you've been tempted just to think, oh, I'm chucking me violin in the... In the taking my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> letting down my hair and... What? Taking a few things off. Nothing's gone, gone that badly. But yeah. interesting with Julian Cope is that after Seb, the drummer, 
conducts his uh, Seb Shelton. When he left, he went on to manage Julian Cope. Ah. Yeah, I think it was quite quite an experience. I think. And, uh, <laughs> but but another mm. another link is is that I'm playing in Tim Burgess's band at the moment. Mm. His his uh, solo band project, and the keyboard player, the synth player, Paul Sandra. That's his sort of stage name. He was in. He worked for Julian Cope as well. Yeah, interesting guy to work with. By the sound of it. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah. Met, I've met Julian Cope a couple of times. Oh, okay. Um, hello, Chris, by the way, if you're listening. Uh, it's my friend Chris. Uh, he's, he's good friends with Julian. Uh, he's done a lot of work with oh. him over the years. So, yeah, I went to see uh, Julian play in Manchester. Must be about, I was going to say six years ago, but I'm at the wrong end of the decade there. So 16 years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, get, get my maths right. Um, so a very cold night in Manchester. And it was when uh, Julian was doing his power trio type thing. Uh, so he got Doggan from Spiritualized uh, on guitar with him. Uh, Julian was playing bass mm-hmm. and uh, they got a drummer as well. And so after the show, Chris said, oh, let's, you know, let's go backstage and say hello to Julian. I had to wait outside the dressing room door. Because at the end of the gig, they've done Reynard the Fox and Julian had done that thing where he, he gets the microphone stand and starts, you know, cutting into his chest and things. So he's got, you know, gaping holes in his chest and, and blood running down him with leather waistcoat over the top of it. So we were waiting for him to just kind of clean himself up a bit, you know, a bit, bit of dental wow, on, yeah. on, on some <laughs> cotton wool or something like that. Uh, so it's, <laughs> and then the door opened a bit. And Julian Cope, his face appeared. It was, bear in mind, it's February, and uh, it's like midnight on a like Friday night, something like that. He's wearing sunglasses, and the uh, I think it's a, a military hat that he wears. But I mean, he looks a bit like Blakey from On the Buses. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the, this face kind of appears at the crack in the door, and then, then he opens it a bit wider. And and uh, and, and Chris says, "Oh, Julian, this is my friend Simon. Uh, Simon, this is Julian." And Julian just kind of looked at me, and I think he was looking at me, he got sunglasses on, but he pressed his nose right up to mine. And and he just went, so, did you enjoy the show? (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, I've got Julian's face pressed against my face. (laughs) And because he'd been going on about his power trio and like, you know, the the power of rock and all this sort of thing, he's like, yeah, it was rocking. What do you say? Yeah. <laughs> That's quite an intimidating thing for Julian yeah. to do to you there. Yeah. yeah. The last time I saw him, he was wearing tights and eating pizza, which is more normal, I think. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. God bless him. We need characters like that in rock and roll, don't we? We do. Of course we do. We do. Course we do. And, and Smash yeah. it's, you know, loved Julian Cope and the teardrop explodes in these early years, which is why, you know, the kind of, this is reported uh, in the magazine. On the next page, we, it talks about the haunting piano music that accompanies David Sylvian on Japan's Night Porter single. It was a lot to the turn of the century French composer Eric Satie. I think that's the first time I can remember Satie being uh, name-dropped in Smash It's Possibly yeah, the only time. Possibly the only time. And um, I've never made that connection. But when I've read that, I'm like, of mm, course. Yeah. I've I've actually been um, I've been a little yeah. bit obsessed with that song recently, so I've, I've been listening to it rather a lot. Yeah, when it's come up on the playlist, every time I'm like, oh, this is really gorgeous. Yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah, and great to see the pale fountains in there. Yes. Obviously, uh, interesting to see a very young Michael Head or Mick Head in there later. Of um, what was it? The Shack. That's it. Shack. Yeah. Yes. 
and uh, and and various other things. A, a Liverpool legend. So yeah, re- really nice to see them in there, like twelve years old or something like that. Oh, one one more little thing. Spandar Ballet have returned from the sun baked island of Nassau where they recorded chunks of their next LP and are busy putting the finishing touches before it's released in February. A single will precede it in January. And this was a time, you know, we, we talked about Simon Le Bon and Jonathan Le Bon uh, with their Antiguan adventures and Spandara are off to hot climbs as well. I, Helen, you, you said earlier on in the introduction when we were talking to you that uh, you'd had a very busy year. Did you have any kind of rest and relaxation in a Caribbean island or anything like that? I'm guessing not. Or, exo- <laughs> or, or even exotic recording <laughs> sessions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can only have wished, really. But uh, no. no, I mean, gosh, if you'd have seen Dex's rehearsal room then, it was um, <laughs> more like a sort of building site. Um, the bass player actually got electrocuted one day. I mean, it was that. <laughs> kind of place it yeah. was uh, <laughs> um no what we recorded we recorded to ria in um actually it was um in berkshire in genetic sound which was owned by martin russian who had produced the human league and co-owned with alan was win stanley who produced co-produced and to ria uh i mean you know to be honest it was so that was also thrilling for me it, you know it was Equivalent of being on NASA or yeah. whatever, Antigua or whatever. You know? I'm guessing if, we, um, if we're thinking about television equivalents, it was more our feeders end pet than Holiday 82 with Judith Chalmers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well put. <laughs> we turn the page, we get a full page advert for uh, Boots, who obviously used to sell cassettes and albums. The Youth of Today Musical Youth album is out now. £3.99 of your pocket money there. Or record voucher. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. 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 Put it on your uh, Christmas list. And then we get to singles. And quite a mixed bag uh, in this issue, it's got to be said. We've got lots of big-name artists. We've got Single of the Week, uh, it's all reviewed by Tim Delisle, and he makes Kid Kroll and the Coconuts his single of the week. Dear Addy, it's an EP. We've got Kevin Rowland and then Dex's Midnight Runners, which we'll uh, come to in a moment. Uh, we've got Elvis Costello in there, Soft Cell, Alvin Stardust, Frank Sinatra, Imagination, Funboy 3, Special AKA, uh, ABBA doing Under Attack. But the thing that really kind of strikes you when you're looking through all of these is that although there's some big-name artists, they're all pretty much kind of singles that are less well-known and weren't generally as successful chart-wise. I made a bit of a list going through sort of where they got to. And Helen, you'll be pleased to hear that Dexy's got the highest chart position of this bunch. Uh, Let's get this straight from the start was 17. Abba's Under Attack got to 26 and the review says, have they lost their touch? Elvis Costello and the Attractions Party Party, only 48, didn't even make the top 40. Dear Addy by Kid Creole, which was single of the week, got to number 29. And it it just came off the back of a run of um, three top 10 hits. So to barely scrape the top mm, 30 is kind of disappointing. Imagination, who again had had lots of big singles up to that point, also 29. Soft Cell had had a, a run of five top five hits prior to this, where the heart is only got to 21. Funboy 3, 68. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they'd had five top 20 singles before that. And Special AKA, who... Obviously, not long before it'd be, you know, Ghost Town was the specials, but you know, Special AKA was kind mm. of most of the members. Number eighty-four, barely the top one hundred. So, it's kind of like I say, it's unusual in that there's a lot of mm. well-known uh, acts, but not so many well-known singles. I mean, with this review, um, 
Helen of Dex's. It says, uh, "It's let's get this straight from the start." <laughs> and old, was it a double A side or old was the B side, right? Or was it listed as a double A? It, it was. The- um, I can't remember actually. Um, I, just, I think it probably would have been the B side. Yeah, I, I thought that. I just it was just strange yeah, that it was listed yeah. on, on here. But um, it's a side. Yeah, yeah. Side one is mediocre. <laughs> the usual Dex's thump without much tune or spark. <laughs> <laughs> side two is pleasant. An old-fashioned rock ballad, <laughs> nicely played, but not a single. Has the Dex's revival bubble burst? What do you say to well, that, Helen, 40 years later? What do I say? Well, 40 years later, I've got to say that I think the live version that we did of Let's Get Straight from the Start was, I think it was better than the single that we did. Yeah. Um, we used drums on the live version, and on the single version, we used a woodblock. Uh, Seb used a woodblock, so it was lighter, you know, much lighter. And... Having heard the the live version, which, which is coming out in the in this um, box set of this this new remixed tour IA, I think we might have made a mistake in changing that feel. But mm. but I still think it was a really good song. It was really um, you know I wouldn't say it was thumping not at all not with not with the woodblock. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was a good. It was a good single, and it was the first one that I'd been invited by Kevin to sort of help co-write. Um, so I, I had a bit of input on that with, with the fiddle lines and things. And um, I think Kevin was trying to bring me into the writing team and encourage me to sort of get, get involved, if you like. So, so that that was exciting, you know. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was. I, I really liked the song. Actually, I really liked it, and. Uh, but like I said, I do think, you know, in hindsight, the live version was probably better. For what it's worth, I liked the song very much. That was the first Dexy single I bought. I was uh, 12 at the time. And I'd, I'd really oh, liked really? Old, actually. Yeah. I think of the two, I preferred Old. Um, that's just a really beautiful tune. But It's a beautiful tune. Yeah. Old is, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, it's one of the most perfect arrangements, I think, that... Mm. Dexes have done. I mean, there's only about three sections in the whole song, but the way the arrangements are uh, and the way Kevin has sort of um, arranged it all is genius, really. Mm. It's so simple, but it's not simple, if you see what I mean, to to (laughs) write something like that. You know, it's... And and that middle eight where, you know, the the brass are quite low and and the strings are high and and the sort of contrast and, and just just what it's about it's subject matter Mm. you know um in fact i remember when i went home for christmas actually for for the christmas holiday um this was the time really when nobody mentioned anything apart from come on eileen you know it was the biggest single of the year and been in charts for for 100 weeks in the end i think um you know from from start to finish i'm I'm pretty sure it was uh, and and was number one for six weeks was it or Anyway, I went to see a neighbour of mine, and she met. She was. She mentioned old, and she just said, "You know, it was just an incredible bit of writing by somebody who was so young to be have that empathy with all the people." You know, and I suppose it was only in later years. I I'd always remembered what she said, but but it was only in later years it, it meant just meant. I suppose as as I was getting older, but it just meant more that that it was an unusual subject matter and just. Lovely, really, really, really lovely, you know, so. 
with a review like that, I mean, do you pay attention to it? Do you just brush it off? I mean, has there ever been a review that you've read in the past of something that you've worked on that has kind of upset you, or do you brush them off? Um, Generally speaking, brush them off, but um, we had a lot of negative press when we released Don't Stand Me Down, Dex's third album. Um, A lot of people just didn't understand, didn't get it. There there was a lot of conversation. It was so radically different to Tour IA that it was like people wanted another Tour IA and they didn't get it. They got something so different. They (laughs) almost didn't know how to handle it, you know. I I, I don't know. And Years and years later, it did start to get some really great press, you know. In fact, when it was re-released in the 90s and things, people did start to see it differently and I remember the Observer I think that it was in one of the top 100 albums you know so things did change but it, it I think it took a lot of people to a long time a lot well not everyone but a lot of people a long time to sort of understand it if you like or, or hmm. maybe it was just in the context I think the, the context of the time it was so different to everything else that was coming out because it was all about real instruments and you know it wasn't a synth album and so I, and I think I think we all felt fairly disheartened with, with the lot of the reviews then because we had spent so much time and energy on it. Um, mm. But it was quite difficult to, to brush things off, you know, like that. Whereas, the, you know, to have read that Dex's um, Let's Get This Straight review, you know, that wouldn't have been, you know, it was kind of like, okay, you know, and probably laughed at it, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have been the problem at all. But because it was, you know, yeah, just what it was. But, but, I think the Don't Stand Me Down reviews were, were, we were just very, very disappointed, you know. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose you, you know, you always want people, I suppose everybody wants a good review, don't they, you know, really, in all honesty. But um depends what people write. Yeah, I think if people are, I think if somebody writes something that is um, very well thought out and considered and, and objective, that's fine. I think when things get a bit personal or, perhaps somebody hasn't listened, you can tell they haven't listened hard enough or something, um, then not so good. But yeah, you have to, you have to have a, you can't, you can't take things too much to heart. Otherwise you'd never, you wouldn't survive five minutes. I don't think, <laughs> you know, if you're in any sort of, um, any of the music business, really. <laughs> a reasonable tough skin, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so any other singles reviews there? Gav. I've, yeah, I've got an interesting. I've, I've done a bit of research on another one, oh, and I've more. actually had some. Uh, oh. uh, I got someone to email me back this time. So, <laughs> so the Farmers Boys review. <laughs> uh, the single is more than a dream on the uh, the Norwich label backs, uh, and it says you have to warm to a record that has three Swan Lane Norwich written on the back. Even if the band responsible are the darlings of Evening Radio and soon to sign a massive deal with some multinational company, it's a good song reminiscent of early Orange Juice. So I thought, well, what with Google Maps and all that, I'll um, see what Three Swan Lane in Norwich now is, and uh, it's a whiskey shop. And I thought, well, I'll, there was a, the website and you could contact them. So I thought, well, I'll just drop them a line, see what's going on. So. I, <laughs> I emailed them and uh, I asked if anyone had ever turned up looking for the Farmers Boys because obviously that was their address. And uh, I had a lovely reply from a guy called Chris. Uh, he said, no one's turned up looking for the Farmers Boys as such, though a few years back we turned one of our windows into a Bax Records window to celebrate the 40th anniversary of New Rose. This used to be Bax Records back in the day and I guess they had a record label looking at the info in review, part of the Rough Trade cartel. The occasional guy turns up asking, 
didn't this used to be? I moved to Norwich to do a film MA at UEA and was taught by Andrew Higson, brother of Charlie, ex of the Higsons, close contemporaries of the Farmers Boys and part of the same Norwich scene. And that's a nice little callback to our last issue, which featured a page on the Higsons. It did it? indeed. Yes. Bizarrely enough. So, yeah, it all it all goes back to the Higsons. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're in Norwich, um, I've not visited the whiskey shop, but I'm sure it's very nice. And uh, if they want to send us a bottle, they're very welcome. But thanks for getting back to me. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was much appreciated. Yeah. Um, a couple of reviews here that, that I uh, kind of liked. Uh, cool and the Gang, Heidi Hi, Heidi Ho, a silly title, Nothing to do with a silly TV series and a dreary record. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool that Gang has been doing the theme from Heidi High. Yeah, Ruth Maddock in the video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something else. And there's uh, a remix of uh, Donna Summer's I Feel Love. Number three in the all-time sexiest singles chart after Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On and Jane Birkin's Je T'aime, Moi Non Plus. Uh, American ultra disco producer Patrick Cowley has remixed a song throwing in a few faulty vacuum cleaners, fan heaters, and other household appliances better than ever. <laughs> but <laughs> but this one, this one here, right? So he reviews a single by Malaria. Oh, yeah. Your turn to run. I will be your only one. Grindingly dull synthesizer fare from an extremely severe looking German all girl quintet. Would you know what? Bloody love that song. My favourite song out of all these singles. What have I written there, Si? My favourite is Malaria. My favourite was also Malaria, apart from Dexter's Midnight Runners. Yeah. They were equal fans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that Malaria tune was great. Yeah, because it came on. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. And let it play. So, yeah, I've been checking them out. So thank you, uh, Tim Delisle from Fior. <laughs> uh, but whatever whatever he says is rubbish is actually fantastic. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so don't worry about a bad review. Yeah. Uh, it, it it means nothing. There's a terribly sounding band named Fox in Socks with a song called Sound Pattern on the label Gesticulations, <laughs> which is a horrible combination of different things there, isn't it? It says, soft, tinkly, apres OMD songs of mildly engaging quality from a little-known London four-piece. I can't see the words Fox in Socks up in lights in the future myself, but then altered images didn't do too bad. But, uh, yeah, Tim was right on that one. They, they never did... No. Quite get up in lights, did they? But <laughs> <laughs> so turning a, uh, a few pages, we get to Get Smart. Uh, only a handful of questions uh, going on in this one. So let's highlight a couple of those. In the diary section of the Smash Hits Yearbook 83, we noticed that in June 78, Joe Strummer and Topper... Is it Topper Hedden or Topper Heden? I've heard it pronounced both ways. Yeah. Uh, I'd go Hedden. I've always said Hedden. Helen, do you know? Yeah, me too. Yeah, there we are. Yeah. Well, that's... I don't know, but I've always said Hedden. Yeah, yeah. We'll, take your, we'll take your word for it. Uh, it says, began their weekend in Newcastle Prison. So June 78. Can you tell us why? Ooh. That's from Taffy and Jock. It says, because Strummer and his cohorts have experienced a number of colourful confrontations with the law. We had some difficulty in determining which episode this related to, but this time we believe it was for causing a disturbance when a scuffle broke out among fans who were turned away from a clash gig. Strummer attempted to break up the fight, but instead became part of it and ended up with his fans singing songs all night and a Newcastle nick. The B-side of their single at the time, White Man in Hammersmith Palais, proved a popular number. The title was The Prisoner. And then the next letter, there's um, a photo of a band 
called Kajagoogoo. Uh, so I imagine this is probably their first appearance in the hits. I'm it sure says, it was, yeah. Further proof of the age of the silly name is far from over. Ruth Morrison of Macclesfield and a dedicated follower of fashion from Bradford uh, have written in about the band. Can you tell me anything about Kajagoogoo, the band currently supporting fashion on tour? Will they release a single soon? Originally from Leighton Buzzard, they are Limal, Stuart Meal, Steve Askew, Nick Beggs and Jez Strode. Friends of Nick Rhodes, he's it's in brackets, Duran Duran, just in case you weren't aware. He's also produced their first <laughs> single, Too Shy, to be released early next year on EMI, at which time they'll undertake their own tour. And we know what happened with Too Shy, don't we? We do, yes. So as I said, quite a short Get Smart, uh, only half a page, but then we get to a, a double-page spread on ABBA. Well, a, a kind of one and a half pages on ABBA called Four Part Harmony, question mark, and Johnny Black has gone to interview them at the Dorchester Hotel in London. And it's the headline of the piece says, as ABBA enter their second decade, Johnny Black notes a rift in the ranks. So again, we've got the theme of disharmony in a band. So uh, as I said, they're ensconced in the hotel. And Johnny says, they remain steadfastly ordinary, sensible, quiet living, if incredibly wealthy people. Characteristics you either find lovable or tedious. Articles on bands often tell... uh, Sorry, this is me now. I'll stop doing it in that voice. (laughs) Articles on bands uh, often tell the backstory, but this article is really kind of pointing the way forward into the future. Uh, For example, we learn that one of Bjorn's biggest fears is still being thought of as a member of ABBA when he's 50. And he says, can you imagine anything more terrible? Being part of a band when you're 50. Imagine that. So, uh, you know, times have changed a little bit. I guess at at this point in their career, they probably felt like, uh, oh, we're getting a bit old for this pop lark, you know. It's probably time to uh, maybe think about splitting. Yeah, because Beyond's quite evasive on the the future of the band, whereas Mm. um, Agneta's like very direct, so like, nope. (laughs) I think that's that's probably about as exciting as the piece gets as well. Yeah, it's quite a low-key piece, isn't it? Agneta talks about them not being close. She says, even when we were couples, we never saw that much of each other. Uh, The boys stick together a bit in private life, but Frida and I have very different lives because my children are still growing up. Johnny says, talking to them in the penthouse suite, it began to seem as if the ordinary people have finally had enough and their relentlessly efficient music machine is winding down as they plan new careers, new lives and new directions away from each other. Will there be an ABBA in 10 years' time? Who knows, asked Bjorn, evasively, as both men smile through thin lips and exchange significant glances. <laughs> Nervous laughter. It would be stupid to say yes or no. It depends on what happens. And as Sai said, we get a slightly more direct answer from Magneta, who's like, no, not no, happening, mate. Not doing that. <laughs> and again, sort of, uh, you know, we talked before about George Michael uh, being interested in acting and Agneta says that uh, she would also uh, like to do a bit of acting in the future. The thing about her, that, that or him saying, was it beyond saying the age thing? We were very conscious of age then, and it was one of the reasons I stopped playing. There were lots of reasons, and ma- mainly one of the reasons was, was I had children. But when I was in my early 30s, I, I began to feel really old, as a as somebody in the music business. I mean, it, it does sound absolutely crazy now, doesn't it? But I think there were, a lot of us did. I know Seb did. Um, Kevin did. In fact, Kevin's manager, or Dex's manager, had said to him, Kevin told me this, that, and I think he would have been about 28 at the time. You know, he said this was just before Eileen was um, a hit. You know, he was saying, if you don't make it this year, you know, you won't make it next. It's mm. just meaning you're, you're going to be too old. 
And that's how people thought. And and mm. it's just, it, it seems crazy now when, when you think of how wonderful it is now where you have, you know, I mean, I'm in Tim's band, Tim Burgess's band, for example. Um, Rose, the guitarist, is 29, I think. Uh, and... You know, I'm the oldest, but it go, but it goes down. You know, just through all the decades, actually, and it's the, that's one of the most natural things in a band these days, as well as just people in their peer groups, or say like the Rolling Stones, who are all, you know, seventies, mm. um, <laughs> and you've got Tom Jones, who's eighty now, and and it's okay if as long as you you know you can carry it off and you you're, you're singing well and everything it, no nobody nobody thinks it's it's mad but but back then i can i can understand totally what what they were thinking is we're just going to be too old for this well there was no precedent for it was there we we hadn't been, no you're you know, right rock yes. and roll hadn't been around long enough for people to, exactly. to get old yeah. and still yeah. remain successful yeah. you know they, they go away to the chicken in the basket circuit or something, yeah. something yeah. like that or die yeah or, or die young or something or, or, or die young. yeah know. exactly uh, but yeah you're right we've now reached that you know all the decades really we've we've, we've gone through it it's like classical performers have mm. you know like classical music has been i think there was very much the idea then as well that pop was something that you would kind of grow out of i remember my granddad he was quite a he was a nice fellow but he was quite serious and very old-fashioned you know he was born in like yeah. 1910 or something like that and i remember him saying to me um one day because i was mad about pop music when i you know 10 11 and saying something like well you know it's all very well but in 10 years' time, you'll be going to classical music concerts and listening to classical music. And I thought then, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> and I never did, you know. But that was that was the yeah. kind of the mindset then. It, it, it was just a phase you would pass yeah. through. And you, yeah. but obviously the audience now, you know, our age group and older have kind of grown up with musicians. And it's, like you say, I mean, it's a lovely yeah. example in that band, Helen, you know, in Tim's band. They've got musicians of all ages playing together. And that's a... Yeah. Wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, and, and and that's one of one of the great things is that everybody from their age group has got something new to give to to, to the whole unit because everybody's just got either got experience or they they've got that youth element of. I, I, it's hard to to. I, it's not that. I mean, I still feel. Um, as fresh as I did was when I played with Dexys, you know, I still feel that energy and, and, and vibe and everything, but, but obviously I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, 26, like when I first joined Dexys. Uh, and I think there is definitely a way of thinking and a way of uh, a sort of vibe or, or something that you, you give out. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really great. And I, that's one of the things I really love about Tim is that, you know, and, and lots of bands really, and, and Kevin's the same actually. Um, in that, you know, he it's not age doesn't come into it. You know, he, it's picking, choosing people because they're right, hmm. whatever age they are, and you know, and that's, you know, that's that's a that's a great thing. And one of the things I also noticed in the ABBA interview was was um, Beyond's talking about um, the computers and things, and of course now we've got this ABBA voyage. Yeah. thing going on which I haven't seen um but I mean as a concept you know if anybody had mentioned anything like that well we just wouldn't have got our heads around it would we we just wouldn't have I mean computers didn't really exist in the well they were in their early stages not for the household were they really you know not 
obviously not like it is now. So it's a good job he was learning about computers, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Look what happened. <laughs> it was, yeah, he was very forward thinking, wasn't he? It says, uh, concerned, was, that, yeah. concerned that his children's lives will be run by computers, Bjorn and his new wife have enrolled in a course to learn to program and becoming fascinated by computers. Not necessarily to use for music, but just because I don't want to be left behind. I think everyone should learn about it. For 1982, you've got to say that's pretty good, isn't it? That's yeah. very forward-thinking. Yeah. Very forward-thinking. Yeah, yeah. But, but like you say, here we are, 40 years on, and ABBA, you know, one of the most talked-about bands of the year with the whole Avatar thing. Paul McCartney's just headlined Glastonbury at 18 yeah. years old. But you, you were playing at Glastonbury yeah. as well this year, weren't you? How was that? Yes, that's right. It was incredible. Yeah, I played um, twice with Tim, once on the Greenpeace stage and once on the Williams Green stage. So we played a sort of early afternoon and an evening performance. And um, it was my first time that I'd been to Glastonbury. And it was, yeah, it was quite an experience. Really. <laughs> it, it made me realise, um, well, I've never been to festivals. Apart from playing at festivals, I've never been one to want to go to a festival. And Glastonbury was just the scale of it was mind-blowing. I, I really couldn't believe it. I mean, it, when we were driving in um, and we were on a sort of higher vantage point looking down and it was just, you know, you see pictures, but it's one of those things, isn't it? When, you, when you're actually there, you, you realise how, how huge it is. But, but one of the things that did strike me there was there is, there is no escape from sound. Now, obviously, if you go to a festival, you know, you're after sound of some form. <laughs> but um, I'm somebody who likes a lot of silence or, or certainly, you know, I mean, I live in London, so it's never, never going to be that silent, but <laughs> a bit of peace here and there, you know. And I, I love music, but I don't want music all the time. And you, you cannot get away from <laughs> music or anything. It's just full on. Um, so... You know, I was quite glad to leave when we did, you know, I mean, as much as it was great, you know, but I really, really loved playing and everything, but um, I could not survive a weekend of Glastonbury. You know? <laughs> <laughs> actually, what was really lovely, um, I mean, obviously we couldn't, we, from our set finished, I think we played 8.30 to 9.30 and Paul McCartney was starting at 9.30 and as we were sort of packing up and, and driving away, we could hear his music obviously at quite a bit of a distance, uh, sort of floating in through our windows, which were down. And, and it, was, it was just this amazing, quite surreal experience to, to think that you're, you're actually hearing Paul McCartney. He's not very far away. He's really singing, you know. In fact, you know, it was a bit daft, really. But I, I, I said, is that Paul McCartney or, or is it something on the radio? Are we listening to the radio, you know? And everyone laughed. And it was, it was no, it is Paul McCartney. And it, because it was almost unbelievable that you, you would actually be hearing him for real, even though it was distant, you know, it's such an amazing, magical thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I, I watched the concert later, you know, on BBC iPlayer and it was, you know, re really wonderful. And it must've been amazing for everybody there, but um, you know, we had the option to stay, but we would have been so far back mm. in the crowd and, and, you know, it's, yeah, we, we, we made the, the decision to, to go and get out while we could, you know. We could have been stuck there for, for days otherwise and I'd have gone mad and 
probably wouldn't be sitting here now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Carried off somewhere. <laughs> you wanted some peace and quiet, yeah. your own bed and a cup of tea. Yeah. And it's only Paul McCartney, yeah. isn't it? It's only Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he? He went, yeah. It didn't it didn't do frog chorus or spies like us. Are we <laughs> not bothered? <laughs> We get to the album reviews, and amongst the things we've got here, uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, getting a rather lukewarm seven and a half out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> that was rather low. Oh, wow. Uh, from Bev Hillier. Uh, Neil Tennant gives the Jams uh, Dig the New Breed farewell live album seven and a half out of ten. But what really kind of struck me in these reviews are, are the ones by Kimberly Leston, who I think was working on the design of the magazine then, but... You're starting to get that real voice of smash hits coming through uh, or how we would know how we would come to know smash hits in the following years and she keeps it quite short to the point like it's a, a, an album review pat benatar get nervous a loud boorish album full of gut-wrenching vocals and squealing sliding guitars predictable and horrible um ozzy osborne's <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne's Talk of the Devil, uh, four sides, 12 long live tracks, and a cover that shows Ozzy ridding himself of a mouthful of strawberry jam. Guitars squeal mercilessly from my quaking speakers while the whoops and cheers of the crowd sound positively wimpish behind the rabid renderings of war pigs and children of the grave. Not as wacky as Alice Cooper, but vile nonetheless. Five out of ten. Yeah, five, five out of ten. <laughs> uh, what, what else does she review? Oh, uh, Susie Quattro, main attraction. There's certainly nothing offensive about Susie Q, but then there's nothing very exciting about her either. If she took her tomboy image one stage further, she could become either raunchier and more interesting or more feminine and appealing. Instead, we get a safe album that you'd expect to hear drifting from any of a million Midwest American radio stations. Dullsville. Oh. <laughs> and another four and a half out of ten. She doesn't give more than five to anything. No, no. Well, I think <laughs> the album that gets the highest marks is uh, Gregory Isaac's Lover's Rock. Um, Neil Tennant gives that a nine out of ten. Uh, Neil also gives six and a half out of ten to uh, Prince's 1999. And uh, Pete Silverton's review of Samson. There's a rock band we all remember. Uh, before the <laughs> Before the Storm. What an apt name. Samson's thunderous heavy metal does indeed sound like the pillars of the temple crashing down around your ears. I just wish they'd come round and clear up the mess they've left on my front parlour floor. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's that, that, that real sense of, of smash hits to, to come, uh, kind of like really finding its feet, I think, in this one. And bearing in mind, we're only six months on from the last issue that we looked at, and you didn't get any reviews like that. No, there's a lot more humour in this, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, so uh, it's, yeah. More kind of irreverence and, yes. and not taking it the reviews are seriously i think in the past they'd been more like the the weekly music press haven't they and yes. a bit more kind of we're critics and we're gonna but this is just short reviews lots of fun yeah, and yeah. just a few quick snappy mm-hmm. thoughts and that's it on to the next one which i really like i really like that style yeah any, anything there that leapt out at you, Helen? You mentioned before the Prince one. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to. Yeah, I love. Well, yeah, I love, I love Prince, and um, it brought back a memory that me, me and Kevin went to see Prince. Um, must have been about 1987, I think. About then, um, we saw him at Wembley. I think it was Wembley Arena, and we were quite close. You know, it was a standing gig. You know, quite close to 
stage and he was just phenomenal. I mean, unbelievably talented in, in everything. I mean, just, you know, his guitar playing, singing, his band, that technically extraordinary, but musically just really got into your soul, you know, and it was a very, very long show, I remember. And, and um, I'd never seen anything like it before. Yeah, a real privilege, a real privilege to, to have seen him, you know. But the, the other thing I've got to say is that I didn't realise... <laughs> I've got to have an admission here. Didn't realise Neil Tennant worked for Smash Hits. Oh. So I only just found this out. So, you know, it's... <laughs> so I just thought that was pretty pretty amazing to be the last one to know, probably. But, but um... well, If you've got his phone number, share it with us. <laughs> try, try and find someone who can... Uh... <laughs> Uh, speak to speak to him on our behalf. Yeah, come on, Neil. Come on, come on board. We, we've got biscuits and Earl Grey tea for him and everything. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell him if I, if I ever see him. I'll tell him. Oh, thank you. There we are. Yeah, I never saw Prince live, but I did. I mean, I'm not a massive fan. I, I like Prince, obviously. He doesn't. But uh, a few years ago, I dreamt I saw him in a small club. I don't know why I dreamt oh. I'd gone to Prince Club and it was like a really intimate gig. Yeah. And I've got to say, he was really good. I mean, it was just a dream, but he was yeah. very good in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I went Amazing. to a went to a concert in a dream to see David Bowie at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, and he did all completely new songs. And I woke up, oh. oh, wow, that was amazing. Couldn't remember any of the songs. Oh, you didn't record any of no, them? No, I didn't dreams. record it, no. Oh. no. I normally record everything. You do. <laughs> I've still got the single 90s to prove it. <laughs> Uh, right, we have reached the halfway points of the magazine, a, a poster of uh, Soft Cell luxuriating in the uh, centre spread there. But it's at this point that we're going to do a little quiz. Now, it's nothing serious. It, uh, it's, 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 it's just a bit of fun, but it's a lyrics quiz. So I've, I've gone uh-huh. through the songs that are in this magazine. I've, I've picked out three lines, and I'm going to give you uh, multiple options for uh, each song. So lyric number one, well, goodbye, baby doll. Oh, down the road I go. So that's well, goodbye, baby doll. Oh, down the road I go. Your options are A, dear Addie, Kid Creole, the coconuts. B, Lordy Miss Claudie, Shaking Stevens. Or C, Phil Everly, Louise. Which, Which of those three do you think that is? Well, goodbye, baby doll. Oh, down the road I go. Helen? Um, I think I'd go for Phil Everly. Yeah, okay. that would have been my choice as well. It's got that kind of old style sound to mm. it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, you're right with the old style sound to it. It's Shaking Stevens. Oh. Lordy oh, Miss Claudia. Well, yeah, it was a cool. Lloyd Price song. So, you know, it's from, from Phil Everly's original era. Okay, so, you know, don't feel too bad about that. Yeah, yeah. give us half. Oh, not a million miles off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got the spirit right. Number two. Exactly. Uh, number two, your lyric is, she's looking, she's looking, she's looking, she's looking, just, 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 looking like a hobo. Oh, I know this one. Yeah, so it's, she's looking, she's looking, she's looking, she's looking, just, 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 looking like a hobo. Is it A, changes by imagination? 
B, I'm Alright by Young Steve and the Afternoon Boys. Or C, Malcolm McLaren and the world's famous supreme team, Buffalo Gals. Oh, I've spelled it wrong. I've put Buffalo Gals, but never mind. <laughs> right. I know this one. So, Helen, do you want to, do you want to guess first? I don't know. I haven't got a clue, but I'll go for Buffalo Girls, I think. I, but that's exactly what I was going to say. You're that's both right. absolutely right. Yeah. Well done. Ah, <laughs> yeah. It was just like a hobo. Was that used? Was that the name of an album? Or... Got no idea. Uh, so I remember that lyric from somewhere anyway. So no, yeah. I didn't even know that was the lyric. So oh, there right. you go. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Smash Hits. <laughs> Number three, your final lyric with your final three choices. Um, I can't wait to hold you and kiss you. Don't you know how much I miss you? Is it Rene and Renato, save your love? Is it the cure? Let's go to bed. Or is it the pale fountains and thank you? I can't wait to hold you and kiss you. Don't you know how much I miss you? Rene and Renato, the cure or the pale fountains? So I... I'd say Rene and Renato. <laughs> I'm not deliberately copying you Helen. Copying yeah. <laughs> Whatever Helen says. No, that is what I was, I was just about to say. I think it's running around. Right I think I can, I'm not going to sing it, but I think I even know the melody to that. Please don't sing no, that. Oh, go on. No, you really don't want to hear that. <laughs> In your best opera voice, yep, Rene Renato, yes. save your love. Well, hey. well done. Quite well. Two out of three. <laughs> not bad. Oh, actually, it was two and a half, wasn't yeah, it? We yeah, got half of the first yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, I mean, Meatloaf said two out of three is not bad, and that was two and a half, so that's yeah. really good, isn't it? Yeah. On the Meatloaf scale. Oh, <laughs> good work, Helen. Well done. Sorry I copied you. I did, honestly. I would have generally gone for all of the same ones. We think in the same way. <laughs> Moving on, we've got one page oh, on Whitesnake. Mark Steeles uh, has gone to meet. White Snake, they're back after 18 months break. And uh, David Coverdale is always a, a fun interview. He's uh, the main man of White Snake, and he talks about. <laughs> There's a lovely quote here. It says, uh, David Coverdale of uh, Hard Rockers White Snake has just come back from 18 months in the wilderness with a new album, Saints sinners and a tour which far from suggesting he's reached the end of the yellow brick road both indicate the white snake are hotter than ever i think it was segovia who said hang on is he still alive well if he is he said it when he was pretty ill <laughs> i'm still learning which is the same for me i'm still learning i mean i don't really need the money anymore but i'm very hungry artistically and that's why when the effervescence left the old lineup i had to knock it on the head we'd gone gold but i seemed to be the only one who wanted to go platinum one of the, once the disillusionment had set in, however, the proverbial scales fell from David's eyes and he discovered to his horror that behind the band, the business side of Whitesnake was not all it should have been either. Look, he says, I don't like washing my dirty linen in public, so I'm not going to give you one of those kiss and tell stories. I prefer to learn from the past, not live in it. So there we go. Um, shoddy business dealings <laughs> and, uh, and a great quote about Segovia. I didn't know. Did you know who Segovia was? No idea. I'm pre- is he a guitar? Was he a very, Spanish guitarist? Yes, oh. very good. The classical oh. training coming in there. Yes, he was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't for nothing, you know. <laughs> and I think his, I think the pronunciation is uh, Andre Segovia Torres, a Spanish classical guitarist who obviously either when he was still alive but a bit ill <laughs> said, I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, David's quite disparaging about the new wave of British heavy metal. Doesn't uh, doesn't think too much to them. He says um, they don't play the same kind of music as us. One day Iron Maiden came up and wanted to know the chords of "Don't Break My Heart Again" because they couldn't get it right. 
Now, I think Iron Maiden are great at what they do, and if their bassist Steve Harris hadn't been so successful or so good-looking, he might have been given an audition. But I needed people who could play Don't Break My Heart Again. The trouble with so many of these young metal bands is that whilst the passion and the commitment's all there, the songs aren't. Their roots only go back to the 70s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, well David Coverdale's a soul, sixties soul boy. You know, yeah. that's, that's that was his thing. And as you know, when we've encountered a White Snake on the podcast before, I'm a bit partial to 1980s White Snake. <laughs> <laughs> I did buy the the Saints and Sinners album. I did buy that did back, really? back in the wow. yeah, back okay. in wow. probably a couple of years after it came out. But I did buy it back in yeah. the day. Yeah, and I got some of the. <laughs> Their singles and David Coverdale is is a a, a good value character, mm. I think. Yeah, it says uh, the closing paragraph. Uh, probably the major reason why White Snake have survived where others have failed, apart from the fact that they are pretty good, is that they are not trendy. That's why we've lasted so long. We're not fashionable. White Snake's never been about production companies and Swiss mime artists. We're certainly not. <laughs> we're certainly not heavy metal. The only thing metal about White Snake is the guitar strings. <laughs> you can yeah. smell the testosterone dripping off the page there. Can't oh. you? <laughs> what I like about this now, compared to Yazoo, who could only afford one leather jacket between the two of them, there's six of them here and they've all got one. So yeah. they're doing very well for themselves, aren't they? They've probably got spares as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could give one to Genevieve Moyer. <laughs> sure. I also <laughs> like about them that uh, they continue that heavy metal uh, or you know hard rock tradition of one of the band having a, a little nickname inserted into the name. So second from the left is Colin Bomber Hodgkinson. Obviously, there was uh, Phil Filthy Animal Taylor from uh, Motorhead and <laughs> Michael Henry Nico McBain from uh, Maiden. But what I like about Colin Bomber Hodgkinson is the least tough-looking of all of them, <laughs> and he's got the hardest surname Bomber. <laughs> And he, he looks, he's got more of a sort of a Terry Thomas vibe going on, hasn't he? Than a, yeah. Than the bomber vibe. Yeah, Terry Thomas, if, if he'd grown his hair out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just Terry Thomas <laughs> hanging loose. I mean, there, there are some incredible moustaches going on there amongst the band. I think, uh, was it John Lord? Wow. I mean, oh, Lord. That's yeah. what I have to say about his moustache. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's from those specialist films <laughs> yeah. that you get from the classified ads. Yeah. 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 <laughs> were, uh, were White Snake a big musical influence on you, Helen? <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard any White Snake. <laughs> but Cozy Powell was was Cozy Powell the drummer, wasn't he? He was at of one this, point. Yes. This particular yeah. lineup, I think. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of familiar with Cozy Powell because he played with Jeff Beck and some other people. So he's yeah, pretty good drummer, you know. So, but but the rest of them. Wouldn't I wouldn't recognise any of them or their moustaches or their leather jackets. Or... <laughs> but maybe I should listen to some White Snake, though. You know, I think I will, actually, now after yeah. this. Yeah. It could take the yeah. remixing of 2RIA into a whole new direction. Yeah. <laughs> you said it, you know. <laughs> we now turn our attention to RSVP. And uh, there's lots of people wanting photos, lots of males and females, it's all very formal. I'm, it started making me wonder if, if the letters had been tweaked in here or, or something like that. So uh, let's have a look first of all. I've highlighted a, a few here. Two 15-year-old female rockers seek to male Ed Bankers. Bankers? Bangers. <laughs> Ed <even>. Bankers. Yeah, <laughs> Ed Bankers. 
Yeah, it was the aspirational 80s, you know. Yeah. Um, six, 16 plus. Uh, must be into ACDC, Saxon, Led Zepp. All letters answered. Contact Nikki and Dear. Mm. Uh, and they're in uh, Tipton in the West Midlands. And then underneath that, hi, I'm a quiet 13-year-old rude boy in search of, of female pen pals between 12 and 14. I like madness from Boy 3, Bad Manners and the Bell Stars. Uh, and, and so shy that they don't give their name. Oh, just a 13-year-old rude boy. Yeah. That's all we know. Yeah. But then yeah, across the page, you've got a nice shy female who would like to write to males age 15 upwards into a new wave. Anyone welcome? So you kind of think, actually, you know, I'm hoping yeah. that they found each other. No, yeah, but he was 13. She wanted 15 plus. I'm sure she'd have made an exception, you know, yeah. because, you know, she's shy. <laughs> she's shy. He's quiet. Perfect combo. Yeah. You're like a matchmaker 40 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Is it too late to bring these two together? <laughs> Let's make it happen, Sam. Is this where they put all their addresses on? They're literally, yeah. they've got their addresses. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's yeah. extraordinary now to think that that was just how it was. How times you know, This is where I live. Yeah. <laughs> just come round, Here whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, anyone there that you would have written to, Gav? Um, I think the only one I would have I was struggling, really. There was no, no one mentioned Adamant. But, uh, <laughs> I think uh, there was a guy called Ooh. Jason uh, in Fife who says, hello, all you folk out there who want a pen pal. I'm a 12-year-old boy, so that would have been the same age that I was at the time, into Duran Duran. Dex is, big tick, obviously, and many more. My hobbies are cycling. Well, I like knocking about on my bike, uh, reading and sports. I'd like someone my own age to write to, so that would have been perfect for me. But, I mean, of the others... Um, yeah, I don't think there's any. I, I quite like the tone of um, a guy called Jim who says, <laughs> he starts very confidently, this is it, <laughs> exclamation mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> My name's Jim, and I'd like to write, stroke, meet girls aged 17 plus in the Northwest area. So quite a wide net is cast in there. My interests are many and include <laughs> DAF, you know, you're not your typical Smash It's band, League, presumably um, Human League or... Could be the anti-nowhere league, but probably the human league. One of the leagues. One of the leagues. <laughs> LKJ, as Linton Quasi Johnson, uh, reading, good films, photography, and more. So get it on, girls. <laughs> Not females. <laughs> yeah, girls. There's, oh, uh, wow. There's a lot of confidence coming out of uh, yeah. out of that lad. One more that I quite like, just because she seemed quite sweet. There's a girl called Rachel at the top of the second column. She says, my name's Rachel, and I'm 11. I like shaky and all rock and roll music. Please enclose a picture. Contact me at, and then she says at the end, I hope to answer every letter. And I thought that was quite sweet. She likes a shaky and a rock and roll. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think the only one Aww. I would have written to is uh, Anne, who's uh, 15 from Norway. I love many types of music, but pop is best. <laughs> Fave groups. Now, this would have really chimed with me in 1982 when I'd have been nine years old at this point, because this kind of reflected my record collection. Duran Duran. Leo Sayer, Roxy Music, ABC, and many more. I should have added the Wombles to that. I'd have been uh, weatherly. <laughs> You'd have been booking your ticket to Norway, I wouldn't would you? have, yeah. <laughs> I know you're 15, Anne, and I'm only nine, but we've got a lot in common. There's, there's a lot we can work with here. Anyone there that you would have... Uh... Written. Oh, Gosh. I mean, I know you would have been a couple of years older than uh, most of these people, but you know, well, yes, at, at that kind of age, Helen, is there anyone you th you I think? Oh, yeah, they they seem interesting. Um, well, the last guy is pretty pretty 
interesting, wasn't he? You know, with the wide net. You yeah. know, yeah. Was, he, had a, he had a very positive you know. energy, didn't he, Jim? Yeah, he did. Very positive, and the reading bit. You know, I mean, that was that's always a good, isn't it? Somebody puts in reading. Yeah. You know, it's, did you yeah. did you ever have yeah. pen pals when you were younger, as a kid? Um, I didn't. I had a um an autograph book, but I never actually got anybody's autograph in. But. <laughs> <laughs> I did a terrible thing once. It's a terrible admission, actually. But at school, once, <laughs> when I was at primary school, I I forged. Well, <laughs> I wrote all the monkeys' ditches down. I pretended that, I'd, and people believed me at school. It was extraordinary. Oh. And then I know nobody asked how I got, you know, I met them or anything. But everybody believed me. Um, I wish I'd kept it. Um, but why the monkeys? Because I didn't even like them as a group, you know. Because it was always the monkeys or the Beatles, you know. It's kind yeah. of always seemed rather. Hang on a minute, you know. Is, can you compare the two? But it was that's how, and we were very serious about our, you know, about which camp you're in. But, <laughs> Maybe I'd done it to sort of spite the the monkeys fans, you know. Hey, but you know, I'm a Beatles fan, but I've got to start to have the monkeys autographs. You know, well, the, 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 <laughs> the Beatles could forge each other's signatures, and and you could forge all the monkeys' signatures. So you, you, that was one better than what the Beatles could do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. And that was the extent of my autograph wow. book, I'm afraid. It was, yeah. You know, after this podcast goes out, people will be coming up to you after gigs, bringing you <laughs> al- Monkey's albums to sign. They won't be bringing you Dexy's <laughs> ones anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Get perfecting your yeah, Mickey Delens right now. Yeah. I'm going to start tomorrow, I said. Yeah. And then we we get to the feature article on, on the front cover we had, uh, Kevin, and now we're treated to uh, another pick of Kevin uh, live in concert uh, at the Ulster Hall gig that Helen mentioned earlier on. I think hopefully before the floor gave way, we're not, we're not sure. And uh, also a, a little picture of all the band on the, uh, the facing page. So I think it's fair to say it's rather a tense interview, um, mostly with Kevin, although other members of the band... Um, get some quotes in there as well to set the scene dave rim has done the interview and it says as the belfast to london shuttle taxis out onto the runway your reporter begins to sink into a deep despair that's not a great start to any interview is it (laughs) 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 only five minutes of the interview have elapsed and already kevin Rowland has managed to lecture me on my approach to the job refused to answer several (laughs) questions he regards as quote marks silly wondered in heavily sarcastic tones whether I've ever actually listened to a Dex's record, angrily dismissed me as, again, quote marks, just an observer, compared himself to a doer like himself, and declared that though I'll say nice things to him now, I'll no doubt scurry off and stitch him up like loads of other writers have done in the past. Well, if this encounter is typical of his attitude to journalists, it's hardly surprising that he's come in for some stick. In 1980, so fed up was Roland with what was written about him in the music papers that he declared there would be no more interviews. Instead, the band would take out full-page ads in the press and print essays announcing their intentions. Only with the release of Common Eileen this summer did Roland, determined to sell records once more after a long lean patch, begin talking again. 
Even so, there are still a lot of things he won't talk about. So, Helen, you were mentioning when we were talking to you um, earlier on that this was kind of a period where Kevin was starting to engage more with the music press again and, you know, doing mm-hmm. interviews and smash hits. But obviously the start of this one, it's not started great so far. It does say that he, he was quite tired. Um, but do you think, was this kind of a typical, because it's, I mean, do you, actually, do you remember much about this interview? Were you right there when it happened or did you speak to Dave a little um, bit later? Do you remember much? I I don't remember any of what you've just um, okay. talked about. He did speak to me, yeah, a bit later in the interview. Um, he he does ask me, but I think that was I was separate. So okay, yeah, yeah. But I I think I do remember we were all very tired then, actually. And in fact, that picture I think there's a picture of the group of us um, there. Yeah. Um, I think it's outside a hotel or is it outside the airport? I'm not sure. Belfast Airport, um, I think. Yeah. I think we, you know, we were just very tired. Yeah. It's, I should imagine Kevin was, you know, just probably just feeling a bit tired. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he actually asked me to do quite a lot of interviews with him. I, I didn't do this one, obviously, but um, over the, the previous months, he'd asked me to go with him to radio stations or for magazine interviews, which was, I actually found quite difficult because, um, you know, Kevin had been used to interviews and things, and I, I you know, I was the new girl. And, and, and also there was this um, sort of Dex's line of thought, really. You know, there was very much things that, you know, we would – well, there, there, there were just things that, the, you know, the group agreed on, you know, whether it was music or whatever. And I, I really hadn't got to grips with everything because I just hadn't had enough time or, or had enough – chances to speak to people about it so often I got things really badly wrong um but Kevin was always very um he never sort of corrected me on them or said anything so so I I was never quite sure how I got away with it all um there was a classic one once a a radio interviewer had asked me what my favorite record was at, at the time or had been you know in the previous weeks and as I mentioned before you know I wasn't really that clued up on on what was happening pop music wise and I'd and Dexes were known not to, you know, for clean living, not taking drugs and not drinking, this sort of thing. And I said, Golden Brown by the Stranglers. <laughs> <laughs> but, it didn't go down well. Well, oh, Kevin yeah. didn't say anything. And when I came out of the interview, you know, Seb said, you know, you were lucky not to have got shot for that. But, you know, Kevin <laughs> never, never actually sort of said anything. But it was like, and I still didn't know what was wrong in my sort of, naivety you know so what's wrong with that you know (laughs) um and there was another time when I said on live tv that because Kevin had given us all these names um mine was Helen O'Hara and my background was Irish but it wasn't true it was just a a stage persona he'd um, made up for me and and the same with other people he'd given us sort of identities a bit like uh, Mm. as if we were in a theatre or something and um a lot of people did think I was actually Irish. Um, why wouldn't they? You know, sort yeah. of with the name and everything Kevin had said and one thing and another and the, and the Celtic feel to the album and everything. And once I'd said on live TV that the interviewer said, well, where are you from in Ireland? You know, hmm. and Kevin had always said that I was called the Ballymena Bell because I was born in Ballymena. And, and obviously I wasn't. <laughs> so I, I said, 
Ballymena, you know, and, and 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 then instead of just sort of leaving it at that, I said in the south. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the whole audience and the, everybody went quiet because you know Ballymena's in the north, yeah. you know, and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I put my foot in it, you know, and Kevin, you know, just sat there and he didn't didn't sort of, you know, I could feel that he was tense, but he didn't say anything. He never said anything afterwards oh. either. So yeah, I was really good at putting my foot in it, but also not <laughs> getting told off by Kevin. So you know, it, it all turned out okay in the end. But... <laughs> oh gosh, yes, but. Um, but yeah, a lot of the a lot of the interviews with Kevin, um, he could often be very upbeat and jokey, and and but you know I think it's fair to say he was quite up and down with his moods, you know. So mm. it kind of just depended on the day you got him, I suppose. <laughs> I think that's it's very typical as we go through smashes, isn't it? Si? there's there's generally one interview amongst the three or four featured where one of the stars isn't having a great day. And it's usually on tour as well. Yeah, I think tour <laughs> is enough to tie. Yeah. And this is the end of a long time. Like you said, you'd had a very gruelling promotion campaign. Yeah. Be a very gruelling promotion I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, with touring, and it's still now, it's um, you've got your show, which is always the focus. You know, as soon as you wake up in the morning, that is what you're thinking about. That's That's the time you're getting to, you know, and that's what's really important. That's why you're there. But there's also these other things that happen, you know, the radio interviews and mm. all the, and, and it was much tougher then actually, because now, you know, we can, we can talk to each other like we're doing now, you know, we're all miles away from each other, but we can do, you know, zoom meetings and use our phones and everything. And, and you, you pretty much had to be there physically for all the promotion mm. that you did. So if you were doing one radio interview, you know, you might have then have to drive to another radio, literally to be in the physical vicinity, you know, of that place or the TV studio. So all those other travelling and all those other things are, are extremely tiring, um, as well as doing all the chatting and, and the talking. And then you've got the show. And Dexter's show was very intense. You know, it was an hour and a half on stage of choreographed movement, you know, all the markings you know where we moved was all worked out nothing was left to chance you know and obviously you know it was pretty full-on music you know it was a very physical show for Kevin particularly you know there was a lot of singing a lot of controlling the dynamics and improvising as well so so he had to you know be incredibly focused for these shows and he was moving around you know much more than we were as well and so you know I think um it's understandable occasion if you're feeling a bit tired and <laughs> you have an off day with an with interviewer, maybe. Yeah. You know. <laughs> There's a great quote in here that I love that Kevin says. He says, uh, people will always laugh at Dex's. That's fine. But I know that what I'm doing is totally honest. I believe in myself. I will pin my soul upon the wall and let people read it. They can laugh. They can cry. It's up to them. I really don't mind, but I'm doing it. And I, I think that that really kind of gets to the mm. heart of what Dexys is about for me, you know, as a fan is yeah, that um, yeah. just that honesty and that commitment and that sense of not worrying about other people's opinions or if you maybe look ridiculous to some people just doing it anyway and, and not caring. Totally. So I, for me, that was like a real yeah. um, key, key moment in it. They talk uh, a little bit further down about um, concentrating on America next. And obviously you went on to have a number one single there with Common Eileen and Two Rye did uh, well. 
how was that experience sort of compared to being in Europe and, and in the UK? Was it hugely different or was it just, did it feel like just more of the same after what you'd been doing? Um, it was hugely different, actually, because um, mainly, mainly because it, well, it's such a big country and, and um, a, a bit like when I was mentioning about Glastonbury, you know, it, it, it is one of those um, places where until you go there and travel a lot, a lot, a lot within it, you, you know, you, you only then begin to sort of realise that the scale you're dealing with and how how different all the areas are. So, for example, around the edges of America, like um, New York, Boston, or Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, the the audiences were were more aware of us, and and um, you know we went down really well, and it was all great. But then we could go into the middle of America, and nobody would have heard of us. They might have known Come and Eileen through MTV, mm. but the rest of Turay wasn't played, so it was quite a shock, really. And um, and in fact, Kevin reacted to that. In sometimes he just wouldn't play Come and Eileen, <laughs> so <laughs> the only song they knew they weren't getting, you know. So, so that didn't go down very well, or with the record company, but um. <laughs> But it was, I, I, I loved it. I mean, it was, you know, the experience of touring was, um, I had been to America before, actually, with the youth orchestra. I'd, I'd been for a few weeks um, when I was quite young, actually, 14, and we, we'd played for a few weeks there. So it wasn't my first time, but it was an incredible experience, you know, to, to certainly see so, so much of America and, and things like travelling on, on a tour bus as well, you know, was new to me and, you know, you'd be sleeping overnight and then, waking up in a new place and, and the landscape. Um, the positivity of Americans as well really struck me at the time is just how just how positive they all, they all were. And, and things like the, uh, you know, swimming pools on the top of a roof. And it all seemed very luxurious to me after my, you know, um, student flat and <laughs> slumming it for years. And, um, and and also the the thing in New York where we'd be walking around well everywhere really in our stage clothes because you know that's what Dexys did you kind of lived it and um, no nobody would take any notice you know whereas if you did that in Britain you'd be like <laughs> yeah you would be noticed so so it was that sort of certainly places like New York and Los Angeles you could you could be who you wanted to be sort of thing and um, yeah I loved it I mean I I could have spent months there but. Um, Kevin, by this point, was really feeling quite worn down, I think. And also, we didn't have, we didn't have good or the right management, really. We had our uh, English manager with us, and we probably should have had American management or somebody who knew how America worked and, and could have got more for us. You know, uh, um, I don't think we did. We, we did reasonably well. I think Touray sold about three hundred thousand copies, but. I think we could have done a lot better in America if, if we'd have perhaps had people with us who knew the market better and everything. Um, and, and I did think that Kevin wasn't being looked after well enough there. Um, you know, he, um, like I was saying before about doing interviews and things on tour, I mean, America, it was crazy because of the amount of radio stations. And yeah. we'd start first thing in the morning, you know, breakfast, you'd be, being interviewed and I this is a time when I was doing most of the promotion with Kevin and and it would just be full on until the sound check so Kevin was speaking all that time yeah 
and then having to go do a show, you know, and for a singer, you know, with your voice and everything, I mean, you know, um, it's just terrible, terrible thing. He shouldn't, he shouldn't have been allowed to do that, you know. So I think it was understandable. He was, he was sort of probably not realising as well how, how tired he was getting, you know. Um, but, I mean, he always gave a great show. But yeah. the sort of time we finished touring in America, you know, he was pretty exhausted. So, so it, was, it was great, but it was um, a, a mix of things, really. I seem to remember something about, I'm sure it'll be in your book, but was there something about uh, your dad going to buy this issue? From a local shop, he did. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, yeah, and it was quite sweet, really, because um, when my dad had left um, the family, he'd left my mum and us when I was um, about thirteen. You know, which was sort of devastating. Really, he'd gone off with with another another lady, and um, and then I didn't see him for about three years. So it had a very big impact on me, you know. And and then when I did see him. You know, I was a very moody teenager at 17. I'd left home and I was very angry with him. Mm. And, um, but, you know, as the years went on, and in fact, um, after I'd left college, you know, I'd sort of met up, met up with him again. In fact, yeah, I must have been in Texas by now, obviously. And, um, and we, we, we actually sort of, well, I suppose I had put everything behind me in, in, in what had happened before. We sort of started afresh and, um, and, I, and he, even though he didn't know anything about the pop world, um, and he probably sort of disapproved a bit, he, I think he was quite proud that, you know, I was in a successful group and everything. He probably wanted me to go into a classical route, probably. But um, I just thought it was quite sweet that he'd bought and, and had told me that he'd, he'd bought this issue of Smash Hits, you know, because he'd seen Kevin on it. And just the thought of my dad, who was... Um, <laughs> Sort of the typical-looking businessman, if you know what I mean, go, yeah. going into a shop and buying some shit. And he was quite a, he was quite a shy man, slightly pompous, you know. Sort of, I can just imagine him wearing this suit and sort of feeling incredibly awkward and embarrassed, and sort of quickly handing the money over as if <laughs> as if he was buying something else, you know. <laughs> and um, but then actually quite proudly telling me that he bought this copy, and I think. Yeah, it was rather sweet, and actually, we had we had a pretty good relationship after after oh. that. You know, from then on, really, we'd meet up quite regularly and go up for something to eat and um, go to classical concerts together. Actually, so yeah, yeah. Oh, so so it was quite a turning point, I think. Nice moment of connection there, him buying the magazine. Yeah, what it symbolised. Yeah, I think so. I think it did. Yeah, and he he must have seen it as well. He must have. You know, because I wasn't on the cover, it was just Kevin. So he must have done a bit of research to mm. to know what Kevin looked like. You know, so he'd probably watched, you know, maybe a Top of the Pops or something, or you know, seen some pictures anyway to to know what he was buying, looking out for. You know, so <laughs> yeah, that's good. By the time that this episode comes out, you'll have got a book out. So, um, how did that come about? Well, it was my mum's idea, actually. And it, quite a few years ago, she said, um, we, were, I, we, we were having um, dinner together at my brother's house, just a few of us that, of the family there. And, and she sort of went, I, I must have been talking about maybe what I was doing at the time. Maybe I was working with Tanita Tikaram or, or Texas or something. And, and she went a bit quiet. And then she sort of said, I really think, you know, you should write a book, Helen, about your, your musical life. She said, I think it'd be really interesting. And... At the time, I sort of dismissed it, you know, 
slightly embarrassed, I think, but also thinking, well, you know, that's for other people sort of thing. Um, and then, and then as time went on, um, I thought, well, maybe she's got a point, you know, it, it is fairly unusual for, um, for a woman instrumentalist to, you know, to be quite involved in a band. And it, I mean, most women in music who were certainly around in the eighties when I was, you know, um, playing on top of the pops and things, but we're often the singer or, you know, they might play an instrument, but they'd be usually fronting the band or, or, or they weren't part of the band like I was, you know, sort of not the main person, put it that way. And violin was quite unusual as well to be in a band and everything. Mm. And the way I'd, I'd, I'd sort of, you know, my, my classical beginning, but, you know, the pop music was always there. And, and the other thing I thought that she had a, point was life had been really chaotic because because of the success and, and all the wonderful things we've you know been doing with Dexes and then with Talita and everything I'd, I'd never fully processed the whole my whole career really and and it was very jumbled and, and it made me really focus about when things happened and I could talk to you know various people like obviously Kevin I asked Kevin a lot of questions and Steve the other fiddle player and Billy Adams and Seb and and Tanita, and lots of, and it was a lovely reconnection with everybody again, and it also made me understand myself a lot better. You know, I had to think of a lot about myself, which um, I hadn't really done, and it's what something you you know probably should do if you're writing about yourself. <laughs> um, so that was quite interesting as well, um, and, and I you know I really enjoyed it actually. I mean, I'd often be writing at three in the morning and. It really took a hold over my life, and and it it coincided. It, it didn't start during. It started before the pandemic set in. But when lockdown that you know was going on and everything, it was something that helped me. As you know, that I could. I had this thing I, I was working on and could really focus on. And in some ways, as as much as you know, it was terrible. You know what what happened during the pandemic. Um, there were huge chunks of long periods of time when I could totally devote myself to writing, which I think I needed to do because um, I just needed just to think uninterrupted, you know, by other things. So, uh, yeah, it's been a, been a really interesting thing to do. <laughs> and what have you used as triggers for, for remembering things? I mean, did you ever keep any diaries or, or anything like that? No, unfortunately, I didn't keep any diaries. I had a, quite a few um, photographs, um, cut out little bits of um, magazines. And one thing that was lovely that, that I've put into the book, actually, is um, my mum had kept postcards that I'd sent her from Europe and from America and a letter, a letter that I'd written to her um, <laughs> With, you know, from the Holiday Inn, Zurich, and I'd written it over two days. You know, I'm just going to bed now, and there's lots of Zs. You know, and then I'd start it again in the morning, and 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 it. There was so much um, excitement and and you know, passion for what I was doing, and and you know, myself seeing what I was writing when I was um, you know mid twenties, and absolutely you know living the dream, and it, it was very very sweet. So so they they were obviously great resources there um and it was just really trying to remember and talking to other people as well and getting triggers like that um pl played the music a lot as well i just had to take myself back and really really just think hard 
you know, and, and memories are difficult things as well because you can have false memories, of course. Mm. And, you know, as you're talking about 40 years ago, a lot of, lot of yeah. and more, obviously, going back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, and obviously talked to my family and, and um, but it would have been great to have kept a diary. Um, in, in the very later bits, obviously, I, I, I had diaries just with appointments in and things like that. So they, they were obviously easy, easier triggers. But, um, yeah, and there's lots of things I couldn't remember. And if I couldn't remember anything, truthfully, I wouldn't write, I didn't write it, you know. Um, so there's lots of things I thought. Think this happened, but I'm not sure. Or if it, if I wasn't sure, I did. I, I didn't write about it. So thinking about using one of the songs as a something to trigger a, a memory. You know, if you listen to something from To Rye, what would that make you think of? I mean, would you be you'd be thinking about the recording of it, the writing of it, or or what memories do you have associated with the music you've made? Well, for example, um, the Celtic Soul Brothers was the first song that I recorded with Dexys, and that was quite earlier on. That was before Touraye was recorded. Um, and it was one of the demos that I played on with a series of musicians who, who weren't the musicians that I ended up recording with um, in terms of the fiddle players. And I could remember very clearly, you know, going to Air Studios in London to record, you know, um, I mean, it was such a big day that that I'm, I'm you know I'm bound to have remembered that sort of thing, and I could I could remember that um, I think I did the the um, solo. I'd worked the solo up beforehand, but it was the first take, and you know it, it, just the adrenaline rush that you know we tried some other takes after that, but that was the one because it was I'd given it everything, you know. So. so so, yes, and I can remember, you know, I, I took myself back to the Genesic Sound Studios in my head and tried to remember um, what I could about that. And we, Steve and me had to bunk off college to do that <laughs> recording. So, so there were lots of things I could remember with that when we got into trouble afterwards and this sort of thing. Um, and, and just remembering, it's amazing what you can remember, actually, um, the things, that, how you felt. I remember, you know, when I first walked into the Dexys rehearsal room, you know, and it was all men and being very aware of, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a fiddle player. Yeah, I could feel this atmosphere from the brass, but I didn't know why they were, it wasn't a particularly good atmosphere. And it was only later when I realised that they weren't happy about the violins coming in because they felt they were being pushed out, that that made sense. But at the time, it was there was a lot of confusion. And, and you know, I can still feel that in myself if I take myself back to that sort of, that feeling. So, so that it, was a, it was a lot to, um, it, t- it took a lot of time. I mean, it's written over, you know, quite a few years because I think it just takes a lot of time to really try to truly remember your emotions and, put yourself in those positions and you know how, how did I feel you know and and, and yeah I think yeah um, music uh, another song I can remember recording until I believe in my soul with with it was just with Steve and me it was just the two of us who recorded the strings on Turaye because the other fiddle player had left because he he didn't want to be part of it and Kevin said I could do the third part record the third part and I can remember recording there's a very 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 quiet bit in that song where Kevin's almost whispering and it's very spiritual actually and um, me and Steve were improvising and, and most of the uh, well all of the the 
the violin parts and Turaya were, were arranged and rehearsed to the nth degree. You know, we just, everything couldn't have been more rehearsed and arranged. But this part, we had to do a little bit of improvisation. So I can remember that because it was a bit different and we weren't playing in that very stylized way that we were playing for the rest of the album. And I can remember Steve, his eyes absolutely glued on me because I, I sort of led our section and we had to stop at a particular time and, you know, him just waiting for me to take my bow off so he could, he could take his bow off at the same time. So, you know, certain things like that, that are very strong memories. Um, it's amazing what you can remember when you, when you have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then we get to the letters page. What's in the uh, smash it's post bag in uh, this issue of uh, hits? Well, it's kind of like a sign of the times, really, I think, this one. Because letters about E.T., about fame, the TV series, Duran Duran. And Channel 4 had launched just the month before in November 82. And there's a few people writing in about the tube and their thoughts on that. There's a letter here. Most people at the moment seem to think that Top of the Pops is rubbish, but it's Channel 4 opposition, the tube, is great. Peter, there's no rundown of the top 30 and no videos of the songs already high up in the charts. But otherwise, the programme is a lot better than Top of the Pops. If it got those things, then it would be Top of the Pops, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's from uh, Kev in Birmingham. And then the uh, next letter uh, from Jane and Ali in Leicester. Our feelings on the first two episodes of the new Channel 4 pop programme, The Tube, were rather mixed. The bad bits were poorly eights. Were her eyes deceiving us, or had she just fallen off a Christmas tree? Jules Holland. He didn't pay any attention to what his interviewees were saying. And the little wimp who cracked pathetic jokes and did useless impressions. Oh, that was that little kid, wasn't it? <laughs> was he called Felix? Oh, 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 Rings a distant bell. There was a, fame, there was a young lad memory. on it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then another one. Uh, did you see Paulie Hates on the Tube programme with her, with her hand on Simon Le Bon's leg? <laughs> Boy, are we green, just as well it wasn't John Taylor or Nick Rhodes' leg, or she'd be six feet under by now. Two seething Duran fans. Don't mess with them. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, Dex has played on that, and that was a yeah. great, that was a, that was a great show. Yeah. yeah. And, and I suppose it was very different, wasn't it, to um, Top of the Pops and everything very, else. That was yeah. the whole point. Very know? different. I, I saw some clips recently on something, and um, watching it, it really felt like a proper gig. Watching the tube, it so, was. So it I was think, a proper. Yeah, so I think that's yeah. what would have kind of, um, yeah, yeah, sort of primed me for what gigs would be like when I eventually was old enough to go to such things. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit of controversy on the the next uh, page. Uh, someone called Paul Tucker, who had written a letter in uh, on the November the eleventh issue, so a couple of issues earlier, uh, he comes in for a bit of a kicking and. Uh, so I thought, oh, I'm interested to see what the letter he wrote was. So this is, first of all, this is a response. Uh, there's a couple of responses to his letter, but I'll, I'll read the shorter one. It says, Dear Paul Tucker, my God, aren't you such a hero? You really think you're great, don't you? Just because you can use long words. So Tears for Fears deserve great fame and recognition due to about eight members of the public, of course. Well, how are they supposed to achieve this without your so-called teeny boppers? Of course, you heard about Tears for Fears ages ago, didn't you? And that, of course, makes you a, quote marks, true fan. Well, what about all those people who didn't hear them when you did and only heard of them on top of the pops, therefore not making them real aficionados? 
and that's from an Oxford Ooh. dictionary in Dorchester. So that made me curious to see what Paul had written. And I've, it's a slightly long letter, but if you just um, just forgive me reading this out because it is quite interesting. <laughs> see what you make of this. So from uh, from Paul in Huntingdon. I would assume your magazine to be a journal primarily concerned with music as art. A pretty face, a novelty fashion, and oh-so-hunky lead singer are all secondary to the prime objective, the art. I'm sure some members of the Smash It staff have heard novelty by the sadly deceased Joy Division. Yeah. yeah. Something real, something emotive and unpretentious has been threatening to burst from groups like Tears for Fears, Blamange, Bauhaus, U2, New Order and Simple Minds, to name but a few. However, when the classic Mad World eventually surfaced, the fickle ones, who greatly outnumber the true music aficionados, managed to sour and destroy the real force and urgency behind this bold attempt to lure you all into opening your hearts to the innocence of Tears for Fears. How? The simple reason is that the record falls victim to the teeny boppers, who maybe are more interested in Roland's jumper than his music. And I am also not afraid to condemn those who purchased a disc after having seen the creators perform on Top of the Pops after the record has started to slug its way through the void of the charts. I have heard... Paul, mate, give it a break. I have heard on several occasions people telling me that for most people, the opportunity to listen to records is limited by airplay, etc. This is where the whole teeny bop argument can be demolished. Bauhaus have been sitting on the shelves waiting to be given the chance to prove themselves. <laughs> a lovely little image of Pete Murphy and the rest of them all just sitting on a little shelf. We're just waiting for a chance. Come on, give us a chance. <laughs> Through Adam and the Ants, the Human League, the Police, Haircut 100, the Jam, the list is a long one. As an example, I would like to point out the way I managed to hear the harmonies of great bands prior to Teen Hysteria by using the music press as it should be used as a source of musical information. A critic who favourably reviewed a disc which I had enjoyed would be listened to and heard. Last paragraph now, thank God. Thank there was a great review of Matt The The Johnson's new single recently in Smash It's. In fact, it was hailed as single of the week. But I wonder how many readers actually noticed this. I thought as much. The females <laughs> were too busy falling head over heels in love with the old and new faces in the glossy pages. I mean, who cares about music? Ask Ian Curtis. Wow, what a bomb he's just dropped on the letter space there. So that's that's why he gets a bit of a kick in. Um, I mean, you know, we, we're all older and wiser now. I'm, I'm presuming he wouldn't have written that now and you know we, we all did silly things when we were young but that is a great letter isn't it yeah, maybe it's held steadfast in his views some people just oh. won't let it go will they he doesn't like no. the teeny boppers does he paul you're not a fan of the teeny boppers what makes not them a fan go around. <laughs> so yeah that that was very wow. enjoyable I, I like that uh Anything, anything else we want to mention from the letters page? I think I, that's probably just cleared the palette, hasn't it? Really, I, I, I think you, <laughs> I think you've just won the letters page there <laughs> with a letter that wasn't even from that issue. But yeah. never mind. Any final um, thoughts, Helen? You, you said uh, at the beginning you'd really enjoyed kind of going back and revisiting, and, and as you were talking about the book, you were talking about kind of going back and thinking about the past has it has it been a nice experience going through this magazine again it's been great i really enjoyed it um one thing you didn't mention oh was was barry oh yes yes i was yes i found my real name i know I can, I can, uh, and um 
I glossed over that. Yeah, well, how, how did you fit? Was that kind of an exclusive at the time? Had it been in the newspapers or...? I think it, yeah, it had been. I mean, because right. Kevin had, had spun this story about meeting me at a bus stop and putting a cassette through my door and, you know, he'd wanted me to join the band and I was saying, no, I'm only into a classical music. This is all just a story. And then apparently I was meant to have listened to the cassette and been bowled over and then contacted him and that's how I joined X's. But um, that story was quickly sort of smashed in Bristol, you know, where, where, where the some of the reporters had got hold of were ringing my mum up, you know, and obviously yeah. found out the truth. And, but they kept the other story going because it was far more interesting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it was, it was quite sweet, really, when, when people were, yeah, we found out her real name, you know, she's not really Irish. And, but it, I must admit it was, it was a bit confusing for me at the time because I sort of had to keep this identity up the band and knowing that people knew some people knew some people didn't and yeah it was a bit schizophrenic at times <laughs> it's quite funny because later many years later kevin actually apologized it's quite sweet he, he said i'm you know he apologized if it had caused me any any grief but actually it, it didn't cause me any grief it, it you know i really loved the name i've always kept it and um and i i just like the idea that he was thinking like that 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 it was a very theatrical way of looking at um, his art, you know, and, and um, giving people new names and everything. So it, it didn't bother me at all. But I thought it was it was very nice of him to think that it might, you know, it could have caused me difficulties, you know. Anything for you, Si? Uh, well, the thing I noticed, I got to the end of the magazine and I thought, there's something missing. A big hole. A big hole. And it wasn't the centre spread from the middle of the magazine because I was looking at it on, on the – because sometimes you get an issue of smash it it's always, and you've already put the poster up or something like that. And I've been looking at it on my tablet. So it wasn't that. No, the, the big hole that was missing from this issue of smash it was you be bloody 40. Where were they? They weren't there. <laughs> been a running joke Helen virtually every issue of smash hits and we've done issues all through the 80s even into the 90s and I think this is the first one in about well, more than 20 where there's not a lyric by UB40 there's not a news really? article on them there's not a singles oh. review an album review a live review or an advert for an album or a single or really something. it's a UB40 wow. free zone <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> Rare edition. Yeah. Collector's item. Yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about it, to be honest. No. Gosh. <laughs> such, a, such a collector's item, I'm going to get the monkeys to sign it. <laughs> Helen, do you know anywhere I can get the monkeys' signatures? <laughs> Leave it with me. All right, thanks. <laughs> Well, I think that's, uh, that's a good point to which to uh, wind down the carousel and uh, bring things to a close. <laughs> thanks, Helen. And uh, we must also say thanks to Ian at Root Publishing uh, for, well, making this happen. Uh, Helen's book, What She Like, is out now. So go and ask your local bookshop to get it for you. And also thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget to check out our website giddypoppod.home.blog where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash It's that we've been looking at along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists so you can uh, enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest and of course you can check out our previous episodes playlists and scans our back issues if you will while you're there absolutely and of course if you want to support us by buying us a coffee a virtual one we'd be forever in your debt if you go to coffee.com forward slash giddypoppod is where you can go to do that that's ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod and of course you can always come and say hello to us at giddypoppod on twitter facebook and instagram and 
If we're not very tired after a long flight from Belfast, we'll say hello back. We will. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye! Bye! Bye.